Hello, welcome everybody. This is Evan Proud, host on the Mat Radio, filling in today as your guest host. I'm calling here from P, uh, Pro Wrestling Powerhouse Radio. Calling in, this is Heartbeat Radio. We here have a live, very great show for you. We have coming up very soon. We will have coming up Pat the Parade and Bertrand Herbert, who wrote the book Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs. It is about the Montreal wrestling scene that was very prominent inside Canada. Also at 9.30, we will have Michelle DeBeau calling in, who is one of the greatest heels in the Montreal and in Canada wrestling history. Also coming up around the 10.30 time, we will have David Feller, as he will be talking about his indie promotion in Texas and about his internet wrestling show. Welcome, everybody, to Heartbeat Radio. Very glad to be here. Um, right now, we're dealing with some technical difficulties. So just please give us a little second. Hello. So right now, I believe we have. Hello. How you doing, sir? Yeah, it's Evan there. Yes, it is. Bruce Hart speaking. Yeah, how you doing, sir? Not bad, Evan. Uh, yeah, I, uh, hopefully you can hear me. Yes, I can hear you very well. I can. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I finally, just got through. I was having a bit of difficulty getting through, but um, yeah, I'm glad uh, I got a chance to uh, come on the show tonight, and I uh, appreciate your coming on as a guest host. So. Yes, there's no problem. No problem. Like I said, this is uh, my first time definitely doing this. So um, right now, I believe we will have um, uh, coming up. I believe we will have uh, Pat come on. Pat LaPart will be coming on momentarily. I believe we're going to try to bring him in right now. Yeah, hopefully that's cool. I look forward to talking to those guys. They got a a great book they had written, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing some stories from them. Yes, um, actually, I, I was blessed. Um, actually, you have a copy of the book here at the house. I um, previewed it a little bit not too long ago, so... I'm very blessed to um, have a book and was very excited to see that. I believe we do have him on hold. We're going to bring him in momentarily. Bear with us uh, for a second, fans. Leo, uh, welcome to Hobby Radio. This uh Pat? Yes. Yes, how you doing, sir? Welcome to Hobby Radio. Having proud in the <clears throat> start. Hey, guys. Uh, thank you for, for having me. Yeah, I, uh, I just had a chance to... Uh, Catch up on your book, Pat. Uh, you and uh, Bertrand did a hell of a job. I, uh, not an easy. Uh, <laughs> it's not easy to cover all that ground, but uh, I covered a lot of ground with your book in Montreal, which was always one of the uh, kind of hotbeds of wrestling uh, for years and years. And uh, I know my dad always used to. Uh, have a particular interest in Montreal, which is uh, kind of one reason why he uh, he seemed to always have a, all kinds of the uh, Montreal-based guys, uh, kind of a 
you know, some of our best uh, talent. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That a lot of the uh, Montreal guys work uh, work for your dad in in, in Calgary, and uh, I mean, I, I I always thought that Montreal and and Toronto and Calgary were the the, the you know perennial three uh, Canadian cities as far as wrestling goes. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, oh, yeah, I would Montreal, say, uh, unfortunately I, uh, Montreal and Calgary, Montreal and Calgary. Pretty much had the same uh, the same kind of ending when uh, when WWF uh, at the time took over. But I mean, you know, it, it was it was uh, it was it were two great uh, territories, uh, you know, back back in the uh, 60s and 70s and 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 early 80s. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 going to be it's going to be a fun a fun a fun time tonight. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh... I was uh, booking Calgary from uh, from about 1980 on, so I uh, I had uh, uh, I actually when I first was breaking into the business in the uh, early 70s, I had an old uh, was an old guy who had actually come down here from Montreal, but he had uh, been a I think a Hispanic guy. His name was Frank Butcher, but. Uh, He spent a lot of time with me in the gym, and one of the main guys I trained with back in those days was uh, Michelle Martel's brother, Rick Martel, who was just kind mm -hmm. of uh, breaking in at that time. And uh, mm -hmm. I was sort of, uh, we had a, a pretty good uh, contingent of French-Canadian guys during that stretch, uh, including Michelle Martel and uh, Don Gagné or Frenchie Martin and... Uh, I think Neil Gay, the hangman, was out here around that stretch. And, uh, of course, uh, our old friend Abby, <laughs> Larry Shreve, Abdullah the Butcher. So there was uh, a very pronounced French-Canadian, uh, you know, flavor in here. And uh, as I got into business, my dad told me that a lot of the, uh, a lot of his top guys back in the 50s and 60s were French-Canadian uh, guys like Tarzan Tourville or Tarzan Tyler as he came to be known and the Baylor Jeans and Maurice Lapointe and uh, Mad Dog and Paul Vachon and they had that big uh, kind of a hapless big uh, oddity named the Great Antonio <laughs> you know uh, I think they pulled one of the all-time great Mabel parties on him, but <laughs> I was going to say it's one one of the all-time uh, great uh, rib story about you know with with, with the Vachons and uh, and the great Antonio uh, in, in in Calgary. I mean, the Vachons were only there for six or seven months, but you know the. Still today we talk about we talk about you know the Vachons. Oh, I think they were the main perpetrators, and uh, they pulled that Mabel. I'm not sure if some of the fans are familiar with even <laughs> what a Mabel party is, you know. But they did that Mabel party on Antonio, and uh, it, it kind of developed into a full-blown thing with the police, and Antonio was so. Uh, scared and, and upset that he begged the police to let him spend the night in jail because he was afraid of, uh, you know, uh, maybe 
further consequences and all like that. And oh yeah, they were they, they, for, for for the people listening. Uh, I, I, the, the thing was that uh, one of the you know the Mabel the Mabel rib was about making uh, one of the guys believe that there was a, a very very good looking girl uh, with, with her husband out of town and and you know ready to 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 sleep with another guy you know another. Oh yeah, she was. Uh, enamored or had the hots for this particular guy and then they would yeah. finally set up the big date and they would always of course tell the uh the victim that uh Mabel uh liked to uh drink and party a bit before so he would always bring over all this food and all this you know, wine and beer and stuff so the wrestlers would all be indulging in it behind the scenes and then uh at some point when the uh, victim was about ready to uh get it on with Mabel uh, the husband would Mabel's husband would burst in with a gun and uh he'd usually shoot the uh guy who introduced the victim to Mabel he was one of the other wrestlers I think Maurice was one of the guys Yeah in this in this case Maurice was uh temporarily killed by <laughs> Yeah, and killed and, uh, by, uh, by by the the the, the husband, and yeah, he had a, a firmly believed that that Maurice was was just you know just dead, and and he was just you know completely went berserk, and 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 yeah, like you said, the police got involved in it. And oh yeah, my dad told me that Antonio uh, took off running into the night. It's always out in the country somewhere, and uh, my dad told me Antonio. Ran, uh, you know, uh, right into a barbed wire fence in the dark and cut himself all up, and then kept running. And for those, for those don't, who don't know, who Antonio was he was maybe six foot one, three hundred fifty, uh, at least three hundred fifty pounds. He yeah, big dude, you know, speed of strand yeah. of of pulling buses with his hair. So to yeah, him, running the- like this was a. Uh, was was maybe a first, you know. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't speak English either. I think he was Russian or you know he was Ukrainian. yeah he was uh, from Yugoslavia. Yeah, yeah, kind of a uh, and so yeah, that was one of the. Uh, it, it was funny a few years. I think it was around that time uh, they pulled that Mabel party on uh, this other uh, guy named uh, Don Jardine. I think, I'm not sure if he was from down down east, but one of the guys who pulled the rib was Stan Stasiak, who was also up here for a long stretch. And um, I was told about 15 years later, uh, Don Jardine, the spoiler, as some fans might know him in the States, he uh, he was down in Dallas, and Stasiak came into the territory and uh, was chuckling about the uh, Mabel party they had pulled on Don Jardine and Jardine was that incensed he came up and uh, hit Stasiak and they got into a big fight in the dressing room uh, <laughs> like 15 years after the fact but Jardine was still that upset about the uh, the Mabel party but, but that was kind of uh, that was all part of it I don't want to get a digression <laughs> <laughs> not the um, not not since I believe we do have um, Bertrand on. Let me let me try to bring him also. Bertrand, am, am I saying his name right? 
Yeah, yeah, Bertram, yeah, yeah you, you got you got you got the name right. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, let, let me bring him in now. Uh, welcome yes, to hello? Uh, Hobby Radio. Hello, how you doing, sir? We apologize for the wait. Is uh, Bertrand? Yes, I'm here. Yes, uh, you're here live with Bruce Hart, and we also have a uh, we also have a uh, Pat on the line too, talking about um, Canada memories and uh, about the book. Yes, good yeah, evening, everyone. Nice to hear from you, Bertrand. Yeah, we'll sort of. Uh, I'd love to hear some perspectives from you guys, just on what uh, maybe what inspired you guys to write the book, and uh, some of the uh, things you found most interesting when you were uh, when you were writing it. And, you know, you guys got a, covered a, an incredible amount of uh, history in there, from all the way back, way the heck back in the. Uh, Turn of the 1900s to the present, you know. So we covered every everyone from way back, bef- long before uh, Yvonne Robert and some of those other legendary people. But yeah, if you guys could maybe give us a little bit of uh, background and you know, kind of uh, what inspired you to write it and some of the uh, chronology of uh, of what happened there, because. It certainly was one of the uh, most uh, productive and uh, colorful promotions or territories in the history of the business. I, I know my dad, as I was mentioning earlier on to Pat, was always a huge fan of uh, Montreal and used to get a lot of talent from there and was always kind of uh, one of the uh, promotions he liked to do business with. So. But I'll, I'll let you guys kind of give us some intro and some background on on Montreal. Well, actually, the the idea came. Uh, I was supposed to. The, 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 at first, it wasn't supposed to be a whole book on the history of Montreal wrestling. It was supposed to be only um, a ranking of the top twenty-five Quebec wrestlers of all time. That was the idea from the start. And and then uh, after starting, you know, uh, compiling everything and 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 talking about, you know, what uh, uh, what what will be, uh, you know, the biographies of the top 25 guys and stuff, um, the idea came to 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 do more than that and to tell other kind of stories, you know, than just biographies of the the, the top 25 Quebec wrestlers of all time. And uh, I reached to uh, I reached to Bertrand in the summer of 2009 to uh, to give me a hand with with all this, and uh, he, he jumped right in and and you know we we worked for from there we worked for nearly four years on on uh, on the book and doing researches and talking to you know to to, to almost every Quebec wrestlers. Uh, still alive today, uh, that that you know, almost everybody uh, agreed to 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 do interviews for us and and uh, share their personal photo collections and stuff like that. So it was really a, a, such a, a, a such a fun time to to just talk to these guys and and get their stories uh, taped and written. You know, because nobody is, is is getting any younger, right? Gino Brito, Paul Duke. You know, we lost, uh, uh, along the way, we lost, you know, guys like Yvonne Robert Jr. and Edouard Carpentier and, and Matt Dog Vachon most, uh, most recently and Hans Schmidt. And, and, you know, it was, it was important for us to, to get the stories out of those guys, you know, before, before it, it just gets too late. 
I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. if 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 they if they're bringing their stories with them, it, you know, they, they will be lost forever. So it was important for us. And uh, I would say that maybe the, one of the most fascinating things I've learned through uh, through uh, all those researchers and and work is probably that you know the, the, the midget wrestling. You know, we we everybody everybody know about midget wrestling and guys like Lil Beaver and Sky Lolo, and there were many guys coming from the province of Quebec. Uh, what we, what I didn't know was that, well, unless proven other, otherwise, the very first midget wrestling match uh, actually happened in Montreal at the end of the 40s in 1949 with with with, uh, with Sky Lolo before he became Sky Lolo, uh, and uh, I mean it was uh, it was just a, a really really. Uh, good i don't know a really good fact to actually add to the book you know we knew that midget wrestling and and that the promoter a guy that that calgary knows very well a guy named jack Britton, uh gino Brito's yeah. father uh that you know he was another guy from quebec that actually was the promoter for for all the midget wrestling but it was oh yeah I remember it was uh, it was a good thing to actually know what happened just before Britain took over all the midget wrestling and, and made it, you know, such a popular act throughout the world. So I think from my part, it was maybe one of the f- most fascinating uh, facts I learned uh, along along the way. I don't know for, and I'm sure Bertrand has, 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 has another, uh, there, there were so many, and I'm sure Bertrand can share another one that that is maybe closer to, yeah. to 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 him. Yeah, for sure. I think you know when we learn, you know, there was always that. Why did Yvonne Roberts help start Grand Prix and run shows against the Rougeau and All Star Wrestling? It just didn't make any sense because, like before, they were friends, and then they, supposedly they had where there were no wrestling in Montreal for a while, and Johnny Rougeau started All Star, but it it. You know, something was missing there, but there was nobody was talking, and there was never any idea what was what exactly was the trigger for Yvon Robert to start an opposition group uh, to the Rougeau. And as we digged along and talked to a few people, a few clues were dropped in our lap, and then Pat did some research at the archives, and then we put A, B, B, C, then somebody finally spilled some of the beans on us so we could, like, complete the puzzle. And, you know, we learned that there there was some sort of falling out between uh, Rougeau and Robert, and from there, uh, that's when Robert decided that he wanted to to start an opposition group to uh, his former protégé. And that's where he went to Minneapolis, and he got Mad Dog, and he got Paul Vachon to get involved. He brought his son back to Montreal at the same time, and they they put together what would will become Grand Prix with Edouard Carpentier as well. So that was like one huge piece of the puzzle that was missing, that didn't make sense. We didn't know why, and we didn't know what was going on at that point in time because there was no record or there was no explanation of anything. And to find that piece, that was really awesome, and uh, I think it's a great piece of history that we've put together uh, while we were doing the book. Yeah, that was a pretty pronounced period there, early early 70s, I would say, 73, somewhere in there. And uh, I remember my dad, he had kind of, uh, 
he always had a pretty good relationship with all those guys, and all of a sudden there was this big war going on, and it, my dad had uh, previously been pretty, he had a lot of those guys like Kowalski and Abby and uh, and uh, LeDukes and the, uh, you know, some of those other guys, and uh, it was kind of, uh, it became a pretty uh, big-time story, though, uh, and for a while there, I think Grand Prix was doing pretty good business. I never, never quite heard what, what finally uh, happened there, you know. But it was kind of, uh, it was one of the first big uh, kind of wars or conflicts in, in the uh, business back in the '70s. You know, kind of a precursor yeah. of some of the stuff that happened a decade later. You know. Yeah, exactly. It, it was pretty uh, much. It was, it was pretty much what, what WWF and WCW uh, had. Uh, uh, you know, it, it was as hot as a feud as as they would had in the nineties. Uh, you know, they were they were stealing, uh, they were signing talents away from 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 each other. They were fighting for the same fans, the same venues, um, and and it ended up, you know, being very very wealthy for the guys, of course, because they could. You know, they bear big contracts uh, since you know there were there were bid war over there, bidding war over there, and and also uh, you know the, the fans. I mean, the two the two weekly shows on TV together. You know, most of the weeks used used to to do uh, something like two million fans uh, watching their shows every week. I mean, that's a million each. That you know, and it's in the seventies. We're not talking about now, you know, and it's in a province uh, that that at the time probably had, I don't know, five or six million people. You know, we're not talking about the United States with, with their two or three hundred million people. So, I mean, that was really unheard of, and it, it, it didn't last very long. It lasted for maybe a good two years. Uh, but, you know, at the end, Grand Prix had too many chiefs and, and not enough... Uh, not, not enough Indians, and and that's what you know killed them, and that's what and that's why Paul and Maurice uh, at the end of 1973 decided to uh, to uh, to sell their, their their shares of of the company, and I mean a year later the, the company folded. So I mean it 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 really really was a, a huge huge feud, but for a very short period of time. Yeah, I remember my dad got a lot of. Guys, uh, almost that were casualties of that. And most people don't remember, but they actually had started in Montreal around that time. Was the Bushwhackers, but they were called the Kiwis at that time. Uh, Crazy Nick yeah. and Sweet William, and then uh, my dad got a lot of Japanese guys around that time, including uh, Tokyo Joe, who unfortunately lost his leg in a car accident. Uh, not that long after he came in here, and uh, uh, there was a couple of Japanese guys that were big stars out here as well. A guy named Mr. Hito, who originally came in from Montreal, and uh, I think oddly enough, Jacques Ruto came in here a few years after that. He was wrestling under the name of Jimmy Ruto at that time, you know, and uh, there was. Uh, we had quite a few other French Canadian guys that were more from the Maritimes, but they seemed to work Montreal like the Cormiers. There, 
the Beast and Leo Burke and Rudy Kay and Bobby Burke and uh, I think Frenchie Martin was up here during that stretch and uh, and uh, there was a couple of others that were pretty uh, prominent. Uh, they, all, they all had most of them were French Canadians, but they had all English names like Freddie Sweetan and uh, um, there's a few others I know. Uh, Bob Delacero was out here during that stretch, and his brother Rocky came in later. And uh, uh, it's was, it was an amazing uh, kind of migration of those uh, French Canadians. Uh, I guess Joe and Paul Leduc were in here, in and around that period. And Abby was up here, kind of for a pretty prolonged stretch during that that period, but he would still go down and do stuff with the Sheik and uh, Eddie Creechman and and some of those guys back home, you know, and so it was a huge uh, uh, French-Canadian flavor up here, for sure. Yeah, yeah, Calgary was always a stop for a lot of people starting to get to work outside of their own territory in Canada, like Montreal, we sometimes had the people like my uh, the, the, Mike Shaw, I think, who became Bastian Booger, he came to Montreal at some point also, and there was uh, other people, like you said, like Leo Burke, who did come to Montreal from the Maritimes, as he was sometimes going in between, before getting to Calgary, he would go to Montreal, coming from the Maritimes. So, you know, all the big ter territory in Canada traded talent uh, on a fairly regular basis to get talent because, you know, as of t like today, it's much easier to get work inside Canada than to, to get to work in the U.S. first. And then you need to build your name. So getting to the big places, the big territory in Canada was always a plus for all the talents uh, yeah, in, in Canada. Yeah, I uh, failed to mention, but he, he also had a pretty good run in here with all uh, Gilles Poisson. Yeah. He was kind of a crony of Abby's, and uh, I think he originally came in under the name of Alex the Butcher or something like that. I don't know where that... I think Jack Britton sent him out here, but uh, but it was it was uh, some really, you know, incredible talent. Most of those guys, uh, even there was a few lesser lights that people almost forget I know a guy named Chen Lee who was who was French Canadian but he looked like yeah. he was Manchurian or something. Yeah, yeah. We've heard Paul a lot Johnson about Chen Lee as we were doing the book because he was a big star in Mexico and in Montreal a lot of guy gives him give give him credit for training them and getting yeah, pretty good them guy. to learn how to work and stuff like that. He's a very underrated talent, uh, that Chin Lee, and that a lot of guys respect. And he he went everywhere. And and because he looked like he was Manchurian or or Mexican uh, at the most, yeah, the you know, nobody ever put two and two together that he was actually from uh, Canada. Yeah, and, he, and he tagged with uh, another Japanese guy up here that you guys probably know named Sugi Sito, who was um, yeah 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 in Montreal. He I think he actually as was Mr. Japanese, Ito. but he he uh, he had come from, he had been in Montreal for a long stretch with Chin Lee, and they're pretty good buddies of Abby, and uh, I think they're buddies of uh, Michelle and uh, Don Gagne, and then I think. Rick Martell came in around that time, and a guy named Bob Boucher, who was yeah. friend of Rick Martell's, and uh, so there was there was uh, a very uh, 
pronounced, uh, but you know, and most of them were damn good workers. So that's uh, bottom line with almost all of them. And uh, and, and the only thing, the, the the other thing, Bruce, is is the fact that you know, going from Montreal to Canada, you didn't need any 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 papers, didn't need any visas, didn't need any passport. You know, you could you could travel, you know, as much as you wanted from from Montreal to Calgary. I mean. So, so even if 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 the drive is is quite a quite a ride, at least you know they were able to 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 to, to work in within the same country. So, it, it was probably another reason why you know guys from Canada you know work you know Toronto and Montreal and and Calgary and the Maritimes because they didn't need any any paper to actually work in those places, you know, like like you did when you were going south to, to, to the United States. Oh, yeah, States. it was tough back in the... Uh, you guys probably have heard that from a lot of the guys you interviewed, but back in those days, it was tough to get a green card, as they said. You know, it was uh, a lot, you know... Uh, a lot of the... Uh, some of them were pretty damn good workers, uh, but... I remember it was tough. Even my brother Brett, back in back in the day, he was wanting to work in the states bef- before he went to WWE. And my mother was uh, born in the states, and she was able to kind of finally. But it was tough for even for him. But but I, I remember it was uh, just co- a common problem for. A lot of those French Canadians uh, and uh, mm-hmm. Canadians in general to to get work in the states. You know, it was that, kind of that's a, why that's why I always that's why I always thought that you know WWE, you know, in the perfect world should not only get and have you know a, a, a training facility or, or developmental territory in 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 the states. But they should they should get one in Canada and maybe in the UK, so that you know they don't have to spend that much on on green cards and visas, and they can actually evaluate the talent, you know, before you know bringing them to. to oh the yeah, United I, I said that for a long time, and I'm glad you said that because for me it, it, that's one of the big problems with the business right now, and it's becoming a, a more prevalent uh, in the last decade is the uh, lack of new talent and uh, and WWE's got that NXT and they've had a few of these kind of half-assed uh, so-called training promotions like FCW and Ohio Valley and some of that but uh, there's no substitute for actually just going out and working for like a few years you know, five six days a week, like the territories used to do, and uh, and just learning how to work and experimenting and trying different characters and being a heel and a face and and all this other, you know, and uh, and I think something like that is something the WW that that's been one of the biggest problems and continues to be is the lack of. Uh, not only talent, but the lack of uh, any place for these guys to experiment and try different things and interact and learn the ropes, so to speak, you know, and uh, it's uh, more of a problem. You know, I, I I know a lot of people in WWE and I talk to a lot of people in the so-called inside, but uh, 
that's that's one of the big problems right now, and it's no accident that uh, in the last few years, WWE, their young guys, frankly, haven't really, uh, you know, the odd one like Daniel Bryan or CM Punk has had some success, but uh, Randy Orton maybe, but uh, <clears throat> most of those guys that are coming up from NXT and uh, Ohio Valley and all this other most of them come and they uh, get a little push and then they disappear. Guys like Ryback and Biggie and Ezekiel uh, and all these others, you know. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure, Ruth, that you know, guys, talent from Canada could have sh could have shown, you know, uh, what they could do a lot sooner than than when WWE actually were aware of them. Guys like, you know, Ty, you know, Tyson Kidd down down in Calgary or guys in Montreal like. You know Kevin Steen and 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 now Sami Zayn, but you know other guys. You know we have a guy in Montreal named Frankie the Mobster, who's a tremendous talent and could have benefited from from such a, a developmental uh, territory down here. And, and and you know I always heard the story about Bobby Roode, it was with TNA now who got you know who, who wasn't taken by WWE even though Jim Ross was pushing for him. Uh, because of this particular reason where, you know, it, it was maybe too expensive to, to bring him to, to, to the States and take a chance on him, but they could have, you know, took, they, they could have taken a chance on him if he would have been staying in Toronto or in Canada uh, and, and be, be trained by, by WWE standards. So oh, I think, yeah. you know, that, that's something that, you know, people throughout Canada could uh, could re really benefit from, and the same in the UK. You know, which is you know another big territory where uh, where, where WWE take a lot of of, of their talents. So uh, this is something that that could help. You know, not only the Montreal guys, but you know, all over uh, you know all over Canada as well. Oh yeah, the other thing yeah, that sure. I think they're missing the boat on is, you know. They got a lot of pretty good veterans, and if those guys, if they sent some of those guys to a, one of those territories, guys like Chavo and Finley and, uh, you know, Goldust and guys like that, that was one of the things that enabled those young guys to learn. I remember, like, back when I was breaking in or uh, later on, there was always these veterans, some of the names that we've mentioned, like uh, Mad Dog and uh, Mr. Hito and Leo Burke and uh, guys like that. And those are the guys, you know, who would really school those young guys, you know. You'd be riding, you know, we, we did 2,000 miles a week every week, and we were in the van and riding uh, around from town to town. But that was where you learned so much, and that's one of the things that's missing these days that nobody seems to understand it or recognize it. But uh, yeah, you'd but be coming coming back from Regina, 500 right. miles, and you'd have Leo Burke and Mr. Hito and the Cuban Assassin, you know, schooling you. They'd have guys guys like Brett or Owen or Davy Boy or Benoit or uh, you know some of those guys, and they would be telling them what they're doing right or wrong and telling them how to slow down and when to uh, come back and all these little things. And uh, it was no accident that those guys, uh, you know, improved tremendously with those guys, you know. And that's one of the things that's missing these days is 
the uh, the young guys don't have anyone schooling them, and they got all these script writers and ass kissers who are uh, not fit to be bookers, concocting all these uh, storylines and all this other. But um, nobody's really schooling them. Nobody's uh, taking them aside and giving them all the uh, kind of the inside. Uh, dialogue on the subtleties of the business and that used to be such a big part of it back in the day you know, I don't know yeah. any of the rookies but, but I, think I think it's you know it's slowly we're, we're going to see the difference now on the long term with the way the performance center is now set up and the way they're schooling the the, the new kids i think they with the takeover last the last takeover last week they really did a great job they had a fantastic main event and when they had the guys from NXT on Raw, they really showed up the the all the talent that they were there to play and that they knew what they were doing. And I think the schooling and the time they're spending on their performance center might change that in the future if we give them a, the chance. I think uh, the the one before that, Natalia had a great match with uh, Ric Flair's daughter, and I think you know yeah. hopefully you know we're seeing a change in, in a very good direction in right. the future from about that. Oh yeah, I think the other thing. And, and that, I, uh, and, and, yeah, I'm sorry. I not to interrupt, guys. I want to see if it was okay. We can take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, our fans listening, we will be live with um, Michelle DeBeau, who is one of the, a.k.a. Alexis Smirnoff, one of the greatest heels in Montreal wrestling history. So, Breeze, is okay. We take a quick break, and when we come back, we bring them back on live? Yes. Okay. Uh, everybody listening, fans, uh, we will be back with more live Heartbeat Radio with... Alexis Manoff. We'll be back. Are you guys still on there? Yeah. Yes. I don't. I never knew we had any commercial sponsors. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, General Motors. Hey, you know what, guys? Said, you know, yeah. You know what, guys? We're still we're still alive, so y'all can y'all can just keep keep it on going, and we can go ahead and um. I'll just bring in uh, Alexis uh, Manoff um into the conversation. Yeah, are you on there, Mike? Yes. Here comes the judge. Yes, he is. How you doing, sir? Yeah, are you on there, Mike? I believe we have Mike just shy. Give me a second. Y'all get to you to talk, and I will bring him in once we uh, once we get a hold of him. Okay, guys, y'all can continue uh, having an issue uh, getting a hold of um, <clears throat> getting a hold of uh, Alexis Smirnoff. So y'all continue your conversation. Okay, well, you know, if we were talking about trainer in Montreal, there was a guy called Pat Gerard, who I think uh, did uh, quite a few, had quite the career in Europe, and he was, you know, the the trainer of a lot of the talent. In the late 50s, and yeah, I remember uh, hearing that name. Up on, uh, and up until the year, uh, early 80s, he trained mostly everybody that ever came through the province in some way at some point. So uh, that was a really good trainer. You know, he trained Terry Garvin, Pat Patterson, among others, and uh, Ronnie Garvin also went there. So you know, the you know it's 
each territory like uh, Montreal uh, had uh, someone like that at some point that became a, a trainer, you know, that, that really got it and really got through to the guys and, and uh, was able to produce quite the, 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 the fine list of talent, even though his own career became uh, uh, a little bit lost in the process. Uh, and before him, we had another uh, Frenchman from France uh, before Carpentier, Colin Mopa, who was the trainer of Yvon Robert and others. Uh, and Bob Langevin. Bob Langevin, among others. So, you know, there's always that guy or that, that, that training school, uh, like your dad in uh, Calgary, that, that really got it and produced quite the, the list of talent. So each territory uh, that was really successful at the the chance to have uh, someone like that who was uh, turning up talent because it's always uh, that business is always about producing the next star and to do Yo, that well you need to produce great talent and and the Montreal territory you know created local had... guy but also you know the, the the Abdullah the butcher thing became uh, very interesting in Montreal then Andre got his start in Montreal as well with his gimmick Kowalski you know was uh was another one who was uh, in Montreal, and you know that accident happened with Yukon Eric, which is probably one of the most famous story uh, in pro wrestling when he ripped yeah, off the hair of Yukon Eric in the ring. In your book, and yeah. he became and he became Keller Kowalski after that. You know, so wow. uh, it, it's not always about producing the local guy. It's also you know getting that talent, that raw talent uh, from somewhere else, and like Ivan Koloff, you know, giving him a new name. And you know, and you oh, yeah, gimmick was and, doing and jobs he was, in Vancouver for yeah ten years. Exactly. Red McNulty and yeah, never and thought then, anything would come of him. And then next thing you know, he's WWE champion, and he's uh, yeah. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. So it yeah, it, it, yeah so it's always a, a timing and having those places where you know talent can become somebody, you know. And Montreal always turned up a lot, a lot of talent along the way. I remember a name my dad used to talk about quite a bit back in the fifth, way the hell back, but he said one of the, my dad knew him in uh, maybe in the early 50s, a guy named Guy LaRose, who uh, he sort of parlayed, uh, he switched to this German heel gimmick. There was still a fair bit of heat. My dad had another big guy he was breaking in in here at that time named Jack Adkisson, who was um, later on to become Fritz von Erich. But uh, they kind of uh, both parlayed that um, post-war resentment uh, about the Nazis and all like that. And, and uh, Guy LaRose, uh, my dad told me, to, became one of the top heels in the early mid 50s and uh i think my dad said he did good business in chicago and all over is, is hans schmidt you know and uh, he became yeah, a pretty uh, legendary uh -huh. heel you know and 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 um, that was interesting i think uh you know uh, montreal was turning out quite a few of those guys like kowalski and schmidt and later on mad dog and um uh, I think Tarzan Tyler had a pretty good run. You know, he, he had some injuries and stuff, yeah. but he, he was a pretty highly respected uh, heel in the 60s there, you know, and he, he kind of got his feet wet out here. I, 
I remember my dad uh, telling me that all those guys, Stasiak was another one. He originally had come in as Emil the Cat covertly and then changed his name after that to Stan Stasiak after some old uh, guy who worked in the 20s and 30s or something named Stan Stasiak. But those guys were all pretty uh, prominent uh, Montreal guys. Stan Stasiak was the only guy coming from the from, well. Actually, I, I was going to say the only guy, but but they, 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 it was the first guy who, who from the province of Quebec became uh, then WWWF uh, champion uh, for uh, for for only nine days. Uh, but still, yeah, he you know, was sort of a transition had, between he, uh, Bruno and Pedro or something like that. Or yeah, exactly, Sonny. You know, it was. Uh, he was he was known as the uh, um, he, he was known to be a, a very uh, uh, you know strong strong wrestler who had that uh, that hard punch, hard punch. as as, yeah, as a finisher and had Arvida ha- the Arvida assassin up here or something like that. He was from I was told was Arvida from, from northern Quebec exactly from from near Saguenay and had you know a very good career. In in the in the states, especially in in Oregon, uh, where yeah. was you know a huge star for years and years and years, and uh, and he, you know he's and and that's what that, that's what's fantastic about the book, is that for people who live in Quebec and knew about you know the the, the Rougeaus and the Vachons and you know all those local guys, they 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 knew about them and they knew about what they did in the province of Quebec. But they didn't really know what they did outside of the province of Quebec. So the book, you know, is not only talking about, you know, the, the story of the Montreal wrestling territory, but also what the Montreal guys or the, the province of Quebec guys did elsewhere. And, and for, for someone outside the province, uh, whether it's, it's Calgary or Toronto or even in the States, uh, the, 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 the fans will learn about, you know, uh, they, they, will, they will read about guys that they heard of that they probably saw wrestling in, in their own territory without even knowing that so-and-so were, were actually from the province of Quebec. And they will learn about what they did in Quebec on top of, you know, remembering memories of what they did in, in, in Portland or in Texas or in, uh, in Calgary. So, I mean, you know, we kind of get the you know, the best of both worlds with, with, with the book because, uh, and we were able to get that reaction from the fans when we did, uh, me and Bertrand last year did a lot of those conventions and we were in Charlotte and, and people were talking to us about, you know, Dino Bravo and, 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 and uh, Paul Vachon and, and, and guys that work, you know, Charlotte for, for, for years. And, and then we were in Iowa, in Waterloo, Iowa, and people still remembered, uh, of course, Mad Dog Vachon, but guys like Rick Martel and guys who, who worked AWA, because AWA was, was the, big, uh, the big promotion, you know, working, working Iowa. Yeah, so, so, so everywhere we went, everywhere we went, there were people and fans talking to us about, you know, guys from the province of Quebec that, that wrestled there. And, and I guess, you know, at the time, People didn't really know where they were really coming from, you know. And and like you said, at the time, who really knew? You know, you had you had a, a German guy coming from from northern Quebec, and you had another German guy coming from from Hello. Texas. Yeah, did just want to let you know. Um, welcome live to Hubby Radio, Alexis Smirnoff. Welcome. 
Yes. See? How are hey, Mike. you? Hello, sir. Yes. How are you? Is that, is that uh, Mike? Uh, yes. Yes, it is. I like chess. Yes, it is. Great to have you on, Mike. I, uh, I'm uh, delighted you could make it. And, uh, a big fan of yours have been for uh, many years. You're one of the few uh, French-Canadian stars that never quite made it up here. But I, I remember my dad was, for a long time, always trying to get you up here. He was he had had all the other uh, French-Canadian stars up here. So he'd always it's sort brutal. of, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, how are you? I'm not bad. So, yeah, I've, uh, I think I met a cauliflowerelli a time or two, but uh, uh, I've I've heard nothing but great things about you from most of the boys, uh, including my brother Brett and some of the others that have crossed paths with you. But they always speak very highly of you, uh, as a great worker and and a good guy. You know, so I uh, just like to thank you for coming on and. Uh, you know, express my high regard for you. See, well, see, I really I'm, appreciate uh, that. See, Mike, uh, I, this is Pat, and and I see that you still a great heel because I was right in the middle of something, and you just came in and cut me off like a heel would do. So <laughs> I'm glad. Am I'm glad sorry. things haven't changed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that, Pat. Uh, somebody called me and just told me to. Uh, to call and uh, the person uh, who answered me says uh, push uh, number one or listen the radio. <laughs> so I pushed number one. So I'm sorry about that, Pat. Uh, I, did, I did that myself today. today it's, uh, it's only you know, justice. On hold it's only justice. On my own Yes, shows, you're right. <laughs> yeah. What are you up to these days, Mike? Well, I mean, uh, not no good. Let's put it this way. I'm not doing too much. Um, at my age now, you know, I just kick back and relax, and it's about it, you know. You're in good health, and I hope. Uh, well, I'm diabetic, and uh, I lost a leg, you know, and uh, about uh, 12 years ago. But uh, as your brother saw me at uh, Cauliflower Alley and Pat saw me and everything, uh, I handled the situation pretty well, and I walk uh, pretty well, and... Uh, it's uh yeah my my health it's pretty good you know and my uh, diabetes is uh, uh kind of a control it you know as much as i can you know it's uh yeah you sound very uh, you sound certainly sound of mind you know sound pretty sharp and uh you know uh, oh yeah i'm i'm glad to hear that you know and, yeah um by the way yeah. by the way i i saw your brother Brett uh, about a month ago uh, oh yeah yeah yeah, he came down in the city of Newark. Uh, that's where, just in my neighborhood, my wife was born in that city in Newark, uh, California. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's always yeah, we a pleasure just, to see him. Yeah, we were, we were just talking. Like, Brett Brett had a huge uh, French-Canadian influence, as did most of the heart kitties, <laughs> you know, from all the yeah. uh, guys like Leo Burke and... Uh, Oh uh, yeah, Leo Burke. You, you know, now you're talking. You're talking, Leo Burke. You're talking of one of the best workers in the in the business. Oh yeah, and very I mean, underrated. I, uh, yes, many, yes, uh, yes. Brett, Brett would tell you the same, you know. But one of yeah. the best. I work kind of technically. Technically, Leo. Technically, Leo Burke broke me in the business and helped me so much. It's unreal. 
I spent five years there in the maritime with uh, the K family, with Bobby K, the Bees, Rudy K, and Leo. And uh, Leo was such of a great worker to the point the first night that I wrestled with Brett Hart, your brother, it was in Chicago. Yeah. And uh, I started to work with him, and I mean, he started to sell and sell. And I says, you know who you remind me? He says, no. I says, Leo Burke. He started to laugh. He said, oh, yeah. Well, you know, Leo taught him a lot, you know, and I, mean, I could tell, you know, and Leo well, yeah, a lot taught of people me a whole lot. I'm glad you had a chance to uh, mention that because uh, definitely one of the most underrated, you know, like a lot of people <laughs> in the States don't don't know the name, but, uh, yeah. you know, he and Leo had a huge influence on guys like Edge and Christian and those oh, guys, yeah. you know. He was yeah. uh, training them up here with Brett, you know. And he, uh-huh. he uh, one of the best ring psychologists I've seen, you know, old Leo, you know. He, he's still up here, you know. He's, he's had yes, some health I issues, to him. too. Well, I was lucky. I talked to Ross, your brother, at the Cauliflower Alley, and uh, he oh, had yeah. He had the phone number of Leo, and uh, I did get in touch with Leo uh, three, four times since then. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to him, and uh, we'll uh, probably going to have the chance to see each other uh, next year at the Cauliflower Alley. Well, that's so, great. Uh, you know, Leo, Leo is one of those guys, as I was mentioning before, who he took all these young guys, including like Dynamite and Davey and uh, oh, yeah. Ben Juan. Uh-huh. And he would, uh, all the way back from Regina or Vancouver, where he'd have these long road trips, and, and Leo would be That's having a few you. beers, and he'd be schooling these guys and telling them, oh, yeah. slow down and, you know, yeah. work the crowd and, you know, take your time and build up the heat and all this kind of stuff. And uh, that's, that, that had an incredible effect on uh, guys like Brett and Owen and uh, those yeah. young guys, you know, and uh, a lot of people don't realize how uh, important the influence of those veterans was, you know, and that's one of the things that seems to be missing these days, you know. You got that right. You got that right. And uh, i got to tell you something, uh, Leo Burke, to me, uh, he is as good a worker as uh, Harley Race can be and Terry Funk and Dory Funk and... Uh, to me, he oh, was, yeah. uh, he's one of the best workers. i got to be honest with you. On the psychology of the business, Leo was my top guy, and after that it was Roy Shire, who was a promoter in San Francisco. When I came to San Francisco in 1977, when I started yeah. the gimmick of uh, Alexia Smirnoff, because, Pat uh, Pat you know, Pat, Pat, uh, was Pat Patterson there then, too, or he yeah, had, he had yeah, already yeah. gone... Yeah, no, uh, Pat was here, and uh, we worked together for about a year, year and a half. Uh, there's another guy who's got a great psychology of the business. You know, he Oh, took yeah, that very much so. Chart. That's what I've been told. He got yeah. A, and yeah. Those are the kind of guys that everyone used to say uh, that could work with a broomstick and make it look good. Oh, yeah. You know? And yeah, Leo was like that. Make it look good. Yeah. They could, yeah. They could take some uh, big, clumsy... Uh, one-dimensional stiff and make him look like yeah. a world champion. You, know? you, got, you and, uh, got that right. And the oh, next your, brother, he, your brother, Brett, he's pretty much the same. You know, he's a very good worker. I work with him about uh, 15 times probably. I you know, put him over everywhere, every town where we're going. And, yeah, uh, and he, 
I'd say Leo was one of the guys who was the the biggest influence on Brett's work. You know, he uh, yeah. When Brett was just kind of getting his feet wet, Leo would be uh, you know taking him under his wing, and uh, and uh, it really came out. You know, uh, same kind of worker like Leo. Like, you never see Brett do anything too crazy or too many high spots or any really. There you uh, go. But he, and you know, guys, he knew guys, how to, guys did, did you know? Yeah, did you know yeah. Leo was also uh, back in 1987. He did French. Uh, command, he, he was a French commentator in Montreal for NWA. The NWA was trying to uh, was trying something to see if it w- it would catch on in, uh, in 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 the province of Quebec. So they had they had TV on uh, on a French uh, network here. And Leo was uh, was the color commentator for uh, for that at the time where Ronnie Garvin was NWA World Champion. So it was, you know, it, it, Leo had worked for international wrestling for 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 a few years. He, he even booked international wrestling uh, in the eighties yes. for for Gino Brito, and yeah. uh, and 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 then people were able to see him back, you know, on TV since. He was, uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a local, but you know, he could speak French, and uh, yeah. and and that was that, that was good enough for the people here, you know, and 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 uh, yeah, he did he did that for maybe six months or seven months with the uh, with with the NWA here in, in in Montreal, and you know, that's that's a little you know fact that that people may not be aware of. Yeah, yeah, I, think, I didn't even I know that. Real. I know he was in Montreal, then he was Booker for uh, uh, Gino Brito and Dino Bravo, but I didn't know then uh, he did uh, commentator for uh, a TV station, especially in French, because Leo, uh, he's got an accent of, you know, the New Brunswick uh, accent. Oh, you yeah, know, pretty and, pronounced, uh, yeah. Yeah, a friend, he, a friend he, of mine from from the Maritimes once told me we cannot speak good French and we cannot speak good English. <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> I think well, Leo I had a lot something. to do with uh, uh, Rick Martel was sort of getting his feet wet in back in the seventies up here, and I think Leo had a fair bit of influence on him too. You know, and he he became a very good. Uh, Ring psychologist Martel, you know, quite underrated yeah, too. You know, yeah. a lot of Rick modern Martel. fans. Yeah, a lot of modern fans don't realize how good he was. Yeah, but he was at the right place at the right time. You yeah, know, he went to Minneapolis, and uh, they gave him the bell before he showed up there. And after that, the uh, because he did not like to work for Vern, and uh, not too many people did. Like, but anyway. Um, and after that, when he went to New York, you know, he had a good run in New York, you know, as a tag yeah, team. Yeah, I always thought the, they wasted him, you know. I didn't think the male yeah. model gimmick was that. I think if they just had him, I always thought Rick's big strength was he knew how to really sell, and he would come back with great fire, you know. And, uh, yeah. And they yeah. never they never really used him as a face down there, you know, a good-looking guy and all the other. I, I thought they... Yeah. Uh, my estimation was they missed a boat on him, or they they could have got a lot more mileage just pushing him as a face because he had that same like uh, you see guys today like Daniel Bryan and that's his yeah. big strong suit is the sell and the comeback and Martel had some of you know he he was one of the best guys in the business at selling and and he 
came back with that big fire, you know, and, uh, and yeah, that that was uh, something WWE sort of missed the boat on him, you know. They had him as the male model and all that other. It was it was to me all I gotta all right, you, but I gotta tell you but, something. I think WWE or WWF back then had something against the Quebec province people. I mean, let's I, put it this way. Pat can probably answer you that. You know, I mean, they had a hard time to come in because of uh, Dino Bravo. And uh, yeah. finally, when they when they took over, the uh, you know, they, they took over the, the, the top talent of yeah. Uh, Quebec. Yeah. I think and, that yeah uh, actually, that's a very interesting story about Montreal and the WWE invasion of the, the around 86, 87, when they totally took over the territory, is that they did, you know, like they did everywhere yeah. else, took over yeah. most of the stars of the territory. But, you know, they, they were actually afraid that if they left everybody to be babyface in Montreal, that they would overshadow Hogan. And that was a big, big issue with them. And that's the main reason that Dino Bravo was turned heel was to make sure that when they were running Montreal, and at that time they were running Montreal every four weeks uh, yeah. at the most, and they, they, yeah. they didn't want to risk the fact that, that Dino might overshadow Hogan. And, and that was uh, mm. you know, a business decision that they made at that time. And even the match that was uh, at one point on the book to be a uh, first um, ever meeting of uh, Dino for the WWE title against Hogan at the Forum or maybe even at the Olympic Stadium they were t talking about was finally put aside because they didn't want to do that match and have Hogan be the babyface and Dino be the heel and get a crowd reaction they didn't want to get. Uh, even Jerry Briscoe at one point told us that they, they were afraid that there might be some riot if uh, Dino and Hogan would meet and Hogan uh, would beat him and that Dino would be the bad guy in this in the scenario. That was all over Dino was at that time. So it, it was a decision that they, decided, they, 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 they went on and, and made. And, you know, uh, inside this 2020, uh, the territory did knew a big peak and Hogan became a huge star in Montreal, maybe the biggest non-Quebec star uh, since Edouard Carpentier. Uh, but, uh, you know, it it was what they did everywhere. And, you know, Hogan was the main guy and, you know, everybody else was to be put in a position that would not overshadow the star. A little bit like today, you know, Cena is still the guy that drives the business, so uh, they, they need to make sure that, you know, that the, the, the feature and the spotlight is on the guy that they believe is pulling the business. And that's what they did back then. But the even for thing. the models, so when the Rick was became the model, that was actually Rick's idea because he didn't want to be... Uh, a baby face anymore at that point he wanted to try to be a heel like his brother Michelle had been before and he's the one who kind of pushed the issue with WWE to become a heel uh, even threatened uh, to quit the company at the time that's uh, one of the stories that you will read in our book about Montreal and yeah. its wrestler the, the, the other thing guys also is that Montreal was you know at, at the same time that Montreal uh, got invaded by, by WWF uh, Calgary was also, and 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 soon after, you know, uh, uh, New Orleans uh, was also was also invaded, watch, yeah. and and uh, yeah, exactly, and, and Minneapolis, you know, of course, you know, with all the, the the talent they took from 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 Vern, but but Montreal was was uh, was special in the sense that 
um, the, the, the people running the Montreal Forum forced Vince and the WWF to actually share the forum with international wrestling. Basically what they told Vince is that we have a local promotion here that, that drives good business, uh, and we're not looking at kicking them out of the forum. So you know, if you want to if you want to run the forum, you you better you better uh, strike a deal with them and work together. And that's why at the end of 1985, for four months, there were joint shows between WWF and International Wrestling. Something that you didn't see in in, in Calgary, Minneapolis, or New Orleans. And that's why, you know, uh, uh, they, they, they did those shows. And, you know, of course, after a few months, you know, WWF was, was, was in the forum. They were able to, to, to pull the strings. And, and by January of, of 1986, they made a deal with International Wrestling. Uh, they, they would take over the forum and they would leave them the Quebec City Coliseum. Uh, and that's pretty much what happened. And since then... Uh, there was not a, a local promotion able to run the, the, the Montreal Forum or now the Bell Center on a, on a regular basis. Uh, but you know that that's something that was that was you know unheard of and special about about Montreal compared to other territories that got invaded pretty much the same way you know by by taking television and the, and the talent. Uh, but you know Montreal was uh, you know was able at least to get a few joint shows uh, out of the WWF for a few months. Yeah, they actually but fought neck to neck in the market up until the December of '85, and from that point on, '86, you know, you can actually see out a year uh, the crowd are going down. And the more we go towards the year, all much so that in between December '85 and December '86, it's a totally different business. You know, the big show of the at the end of the year was the Christmas show. They drew a big, huge sellout at the Pulsovi Arena on, in December of '85. Huge business. A year later, Super Show Christmas, December '86, less than a thousand at the Pulsovi for the same promotion. So it yeah. was a huge blow. And but they they fought at, until the best, the bitter end. And Gino Brito will tell that today that maybe he should have not have fought that long because. He almost put himself uh, on the street trying to fight yeah. Vince at that point in time. And, yeah. uh, but, you know, they did fight until the bitter end, and they were fighting a good fight. But, you know, the, the WWE business at that time, you know, was not just like doing one plus one. It was one plus one plus ten, then, you know, multiplication of by 20. It was going too fast for anybody to follow. So, you know... Uh, it, it's fun today to go back and be able to talk to those guys and get the story and, and try to put everything back into perspective and trying also to protect that history. You know, uh, as we were going, uh, doing those interviews, like a guy like Edouard Carpentier, who spoke with Pat twice about wrestling, the last two wrestling interviews he ever did, and, you know, getting that history from those guys is so important today to try to preserve that time because, you know, it was so much a secret back then that if we don't get it now you know it will be lost forever and it, it will be a shame because you know i know that at the performance center they have a huge uh, library now where guys can actually read about the history of pro wrestling through books like that like our book and other books <clears throat> and it's i think it's important that they, they try to understand 
why we are where we are today and where everybody was back then and how everything has changed and how you can adapt maybe to, to pick the best from the past and uh, move on and into the future. I wish I wish those, uh, you know, megalomaniacs in Connecticut would hear, hear guys like you saying that because... Uh, that's the biggest threat to the existence of the survival of this business is the uh, the fact that the grassroots or all these places that were once hotbeds of wrestling like Montreal and some of the places you guys have alluded to like uh, San Francisco and Portland and Calgary and Minneapolis and Kansas City, that, that was the grassroots of the business and... Uh, it was the business. I still don't know what the hell Vince was, you know, th- those were, uh, you know, shouldn't have been considered a threat to Vince. They should have been considered, uh, you know, useful, valuable places for him to uh, develop talent and to send guys, send those guys out when their faces needed a rest and all that other. And and that, that's the big uh problem with the business today uh and that's why they have to keep bringing back you know all these old retreads you know uh like the rock or brock lesnar whatever because the up-and-coming talent you know not to be uh knocking it uh isn't uh up to the task and there's fewer fewer and fewer randy orton's out there and uh you don't become a randy orton or a Bret Hart, or a, you know, Ric Flair, or whatever. Overnight, you got to work the no. territories and and uh, learn how to work and learn how to, uh, you know, uh, interact with the fans and all that other. And they take all these one-dimensional stiffs and put them in the ring, muscle heads. Yeah, but, and but Bruce, like at the same like, time, at the same time, I think. I think that we have to give the, the the performance center a chance. You know, it's been there for only a year, oh. uh, and I think mm-hmm. that you know they they for, for, for the, the, they, they, the they did a good centers. job with guys like like Roman Reigns and 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 Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose, and you know they're trying to sign different kind of talent. I mean, five years ago I would have not thought that a guy like Sami Zayn with yeah. with his. Uh, is a smaller shape would, would have been would have been hired, or a guy like Kevin Steen who is maybe a bit bigger, and and, and people were actually knocking him about about his his, his being overweight, and, and you know I, I was I wasn't thinking that maybe five years ago they, they would go for him, and and they did. So I think you know we have to give them a, a oh, chance to actually the see what, what they can do with it. It's sort of like a souped-up version of what the dungeon used to be, but the other part that they're missing is the damned uh, the fan base. Like it's all well and good to have a damn place like the performance center or whatever the hell else, but you still need to be uh, sustaining your fan base, which is uh, something that's been missing the last 20 years. Back in the day, as uh, uh, Mike the Judge could tell you or whoever else, there was like 30 territories running five, six days a week, and uh, you were sustaining your fan base and those people. Their kids were coming and all of that. I know they come to Calgary maybe once every 18 months. They maybe come, I don't know how often they come to Montreal once a year or something like that, but you don't, you can't sustain your damned uh, fan base uh, coming once or twice a year. Like if you had the damn 
NHL if the Montreal Canadiens came to uh, play two games a year in uh, the Forum, you know, uh, you wouldn't be sustaining your fan base. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how they can't see that, you know, uh, but maybe, uh, you know, and you're on that pedestal up there, you become blind or you can't see what the hell's going on below you, you know, but... But I've said that for years, though. That's uh, just you're my exactly opinion. right, Bruce. Yeah, I, 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 you know, they they have to get over their paranoia or their insecurity, where they're, you know, and if they had uh, patronized or you know, some guys like uh, the Funks or Vern Gagne or Don Owens or uh, you know some of these other promoters back in the day. And worked with them, Stu or uh, you know uh, Gino Brito or whatever. You know, those guys could have been useful allies, and uh, they didn't need to be enemies. You know, they'd be uh, interacting. And right now, WWE, they they they've got all kinds of guys who are stale, and they have no place to send them. And they got all you kinds got of rookies who are not ready to work, but they're. Pushing them and trying to, uh, you know, guys like Biggie and Ezekiel and uh, Great Kelly and all these other, you know, and it, it pisses you off when you watch it. I see some of these gimmicks that they might have a bit of potential, but for me they're crap with uh, Adam Rose and the entourage and all this other garbage. But uh, if they refine that in, in a place like Calgary or Montreal, Portland or whatever, and you, you play with those experiment you should, last place you should be experimenting with really off the wall crap is right in front of your own home your regular fans but you know the, half their stuff I, I see in even more so with the divas you know it's just sort of hit and miss and half them can't work so they got to have them uh engaging in all kinds of uh non-wrestling kind of bullshit you know and uh it just seems to go yeah. on and on like that, you know. Yes, you can uh, talk like that for days and days, and uh, I agree with you 100% to the point where uh, they're not drawing that good. They are coming in in town, uh, an example, even here in the uh, Cow Palace in San Francisco, they come maybe once a year. San yeah, they came here a few a months year. back, and they do 2,000 people in the... 20,000-seat building, you know. Exactly. That's That's what I heard. Last weekend, I went to a local show here, local promotion. They had 600 people, and they had, like, about 20 workers there, and four or five of them, they were reject of the the school they do have in Orlando, the WWE. And uh, so I asked them, how long were you in the school, you know, because I watched them work. He says, well, I was in the school for two years, and they gave me a couple tryouts, and now they kicked me out. Can <laughs> you imagine that? Probably, two years? <laughs> I'm sure I they mean, probably took, took 5000 from them or whatever before the yeah. But, well, yeah, you it's, know, uh, it's um, unbelievable, you know. I mean, you got nowhere to go to make a living. Where are you going to go today and say, hey, i got to wrestle five nights a week, six nights a week, and I got to make uh, $1,000, $1,200 a week, like back in the old days. I remember back in my days, that's the way it was. And I did only about six, seven territory in my history. You know what I mean? 
But, but uh, guys, like guys, guys, it, it, we could we, we could go on and on for for, for hours uh, talking about this. But at the same time, it's not the territorial eras anymore. I mean, there's no more territories, and WWE is 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 is, is now you know the the the, the, the only w- place where you can actually have a shot of making good money. And 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 you know oh, if, feast, if you want to make a living out of it, well, that's the place to be. And 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 not for good or bad, but that's that's the case now. And I I, I still believe that you know it, it's it's a different era. And and I'm, I do believe too that that the territorial era was 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 you know working territories to territories and learning different kind of wrestling and learning through different opponents and different crowd was 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 a heck of a of a of a training and well, a experiment that was one of you know if i might add you know one of the uh, strengths of that whole system was i know in calgary you'd bring guys in from like montreal you'd bring guys in from tennessee or texas or portland or england or japan or whatever the hell and they would add a new flavor to the uh the work that was one reason why the uh, brand of wrestling and stampede was Incredible, because you had guys like yeah. Dynamite and Davey, and you had the French-Canadian guys like Leo, yeah. and uh, and you had these guys from the States like David Schultz and Honky Tonk, and guys like uh, Terry Funk up here, and, and I'm sure Mike would tell you the same, you know, every territory had a, a blend of different guys from different territories, and uh, you know, you don't see that in WWE, you got this stale, stagnant... Uh, brand of wrestling and half the guys can't wrestle five minutes without uh you know needing the referee to tell them what the hell to do you know and everything's scripted which to me is uh you know an insult to the uh, wrestlers and to the fans you know but uh back in the day i'm sure mike would tell you the same if if somebody came up and gave you a script you know a 20 minute script oh you do this and i you know they would tell you to shove it you know uh because back you in know, the day, the, the, the guys took pride in their work, you know, and they, they didn't want somebody telling them what Ooh. to do, you know. It's all you'd ever Bruce, do you is remember? give them a damn finish. Yeah, exactly. And they were giving you, what, 30 seconds for the finish, and they would say, well, go about uh, especially if we were yeah, on TV. Uh, they had a saying, uh, I'm sure you heard it, Mike, a million times, play it by ear. You know, yeah, and, uh, exactly, play it by ear, yeah. And, and uh, uh and that, that, that's what all it. the great workers played it by ear, the the Leo Burks or the uh, Harley races or the Dory yeah. Funks, you know. You never give you know, they they'd come out and have a sixty minute Broadway and have the crowd crowd on fire. And exactly. uh, all you'd ever do is give them the damn finish. You know, the rest was yeah. all just kind of ad lib or you know, improv. It you was know, a, and, it was uh, create our own history, you know, create yeah. our own story. And most know? people forget when you're doing that, what you're doing is engaging the fans, which is what yeah, it's all yeah, about. Exactly, yeah. When you're exactly. scripting the damn thing, uh, you're basically saying, screw the fans. You guys don't have any part in this. We're just going to shove this shit down your throat whether you like it or not, you know. And uh, and You're right. And I know my brother Brett uh, told me that many a time, you know, like in WWE, they got so much scripting that... Uh, you feel like you got, uh, you know, uh, shackles on. You can't even, uh, you know, uh, use your own intuition. Yeah, yeah. And, and and yet they still make out like 
uh, you know, it's working, you know. It's only a few guys I see that break free from that, maybe Shawn Michaels and uh, Randy Orton and a few of them, but all the rest, you see this stand uh, looks like, uh, you know, uh, paint by numbers or some shit, you know, and my dad used to <laughs> say he never saw any paint by numbers paintings in any museum, so uh, that so, sort of so, sums so up through. Yeah, right. So, so my Bruce perspective and Mike, if, of that. If, if, if guys, if, if today's wrestling is just crap, let's stop wasting time and let's go back talking about how great Montreal uh, was uh, was in the in the day. Oh yeah, uh, tell me who. I, I, I forgive me f uh, for interjecting there, but uh, I'd, I'd love to hear some perspectives from you guys on just who who you guys rate as some of the uh, very best of the Montreal. You know, that's what the, uh, we're talking about yeah. here. So. Who were some of the really uh, elite guys? I got to tell you something. <laughs> Even myself, I wrestled with Johnny Rougeau, Jacques Rougeau, Edouard Carpentier, Morris Vachon, Gino Brito, Dino Bravo, Raymond Rougeau, names. Joe LeDuc, Jacques Rougeau Jr., The Sheik, who was coming in from Detroit, Abdullah Butcher, who was doing Calgary, Montreal, Calgary, Montreal. I mean... This is just to give you an example, and I mean, uh, I mean an example in, uh, in the Maritime Province. J.J. Uh, Dillon started there. Uh, Ronnie Piper started start there on the second match. You know, I, I mean, we, you can go back and you had some, you had the Key family there, and it was the same, you know, six months. And uh, Montreal was, we were having a great time. And we were doing all those towns like Quebec, Montreal, Sherbrooke, all. Uh, Pat can name it, and Pat got a, wrote all of a book uh, about all those guys from Montreal. And you got a Hans Schmidt who's from Montreal, and not a great talent back in the day of Johnny Rougeau, in Jacques Rougeau, and even my time, he was there. We had a bunch of a, a guy who were all the. French-Canadian mostly, and most of the heels were coming in from the state. That's the reason why I became a heel, because I could speak the language, and uh, the, the people were really freaked out, because uh, I was speaking the language, and I was one of them, and uh, I was a heel. Most of the heels were coached by uh, Eddie Creechman or uh, a manager, Tony Angelo, an example, but Eddie Creechman was uh, the best. So, and we went years and years and years and years in Montreal, and even uh, Gino Brito and Dino Bravo had it going for a while. They had it going pretty, very well until New York came in and took all the talent, and that was it. Yeah, and, and but 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 the thing about Montreal it was in the '60s and, and '70s and '80s. Uh, before WWF came over, is that it, they were? It was an independent territory. It wasn't. It wasn't linked to the NWA. It wasn't linked to the AWA. It wasn't linked to uh, to WWF. Or it wasn't linked to the uh, the I own IWA. It was really an independent Johnny, territory. I'm sorry, and, and that, I'm sorry that, about that, Pat. But Johnny well, Rizzo oh, yeah. for a long time belonged to NWA. I'm I'm sorry. Johnny Rougeau, on yeah. the beginning when he promoted, he belonged to NWA. He was actually never Eddie part Eddie of the NWA. 
Eddie Quinn died in like 61, was it? Something like that. Yeah, Quinn Quinn died in 64, and Quinn was was the last promoter from Montreal to actually have his NWA license. Johnny Johnny never had the NWA license. Well, how come he had the right to vote for the world champion? He didn't. Because he Maybe told that's me. what he was saying at the time, but but I mean, if hey. you look at the, the, there was a guy named Tim Ombaker who did that great book about the NWA and, and its history, and and Johnny is not was not a voting member at any time. Okay, what, well, I'll take who, your word was, because you made a lot of you know Pat. I know you did a lot of research and everything. I'll take your word, but I remember one night when uh, Harley Race took the belt, uh, switched the belt to uh, Terry Funk. In Toronto, he uh, turned around the, the day before. He told me, he says, it's going to be a big change on the NWA. I says, what do you mean? He says, Terry Funk's going to take the belt from Harley Race, or Harley Race took it from Terry, one of the two. I says, well, how do you know? You know, He says, well, I vote. You know, well, he maybe like, maybe he wasn't the no. Maybe he wasn't the no, but at the time, the NWA champion wasn't even coming to Montreal. So, so I yes, mean, if... Right. if, if if and if if Johnny would have been part of the NWO at the time, we would have seen the champion in Montreal, you know. And, well, and, you're right. And, but and, and that's the thing. That's the thing that was then? awesome about Montreal is that is that talents from you know all over the country and all over uh, North America was able to come and work here, uh, since yes. it wasn't linked to to any any of the of the top three. You know, even even in the 80s, we saw guys like Ric Flair. And and guys like like uh, uh, the the uh, Nick Bockwinkel and John Butsaruta, who was working with Vern at the time, come here, and yeah. it was the same in the seventies and 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 the sixties when Johnny and Luke and and Grappy Wrestling started. So that, yeah, that's but, one thing that was special about about the territory is that uh, okay, we were getting Pat, talent from all over the place. Yeah, but that and uh, Bruce gonna probably agree with me on that. We did not need, Calgary did not need the NWA or AWA or WWE or whatever you want to mention. We had our own little independent territory. Oh, yeah, he'd bring the champion in. He'd bring the champion once once a year, maybe. Yeah, at the Calgary Stampede. That was it. He'd bring Harley or Dory or Briscoe up for uh, one week. And the rest of the time, you never... Even New Brunswick were using uh, Harley Race and Terry Funk when they were champion and Terry Funk for a week. Yeah, that and, I mean, they were it. independent. Yeah, yeah, that's all. I mean, we did not need back in those days. Uh, first of all, they were taking a percentage of the territory, which Johnny Rougeau did not want to give a certain percentage. And uh, also your dad did want to give a certain percentage of his territory. Uh, but they so never we did you... not need it. They would never let you switch a belt or anything either. You know, it was always uh, no. oh, a one-way street, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think my dad finally, they had too many cooks in the kitchen in the early 80s in the NWA, and my dad, uh, I, I think Dusty and all those guys were playing games with the uh, NWA belt. And I remember exactly. uh, Harley You're was supposed to come up and the they... Belt. They canceled Harley about three weeks' notice, so my dad contacted Vern Gagne, and he sent Bockwinkel up instead, and 
after that, my dad, even though my dad had been in the NWA since 1950, uh, basically said, screw you guys, I, uh, I'm no longer going to use your champion. And it started going down the toilet uh, around that time, you know. They, uh, yeah. They were, nobody was uh, sticking together, you know, and they had a, you know, a few guys down in the south there that were pretty much controlling it, and it just kind of went down the toilet then, you know, and uh, that was one of the reasons oh, yeah, you, why you, Vinny had, you had, had it so North easy. Carolina, you had the Crockett, North Carolina, you had Atlanta with Paul Jones, and you had uh, Florida, uh, with that Eddie was Graham. Luciano. Yeah, Eddie Graham. I mean, this was all the click of the NWA back then, you know. Yeah. And they were and, uh, powerful. The Funk. Yeah, and they, they Dory, Funk of... Dory Funk was the booker for how many years? Dory Funk was the booker with uh, uh, Sam uh, Muchnick for yeah. how many years? And, and, and not, 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 to cut, not to cut this conversation going on, I, I'm, I'm looking oh. at time. I know we have, to, we have a surprise caller that will be calling momentarily. I want to give... Um, with two minutes left, real quick, um, you know, want to thank definitely with uh, uh, Michelle uh, Michelle Dubois. Want to thank Pat and uh, Bertrand for calling in. Um, want to say real quick, I have a copy of the book, um, Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs, and um, I've read a little bit of it. And I say I definitely am a, um, am a fan of it. We actually gave it away on my show um, to a fan, and he's supposed to be letting me know what he thinks. So real quick, want to see Pat and um, Bertrand. Um, is there anything you want to promote, real quick? Before, yes, uh, of you, course. Um, surprise guest calling. Yes, the book is available everywhere, good bookstores, Amazon.ca, or any online sellers. It was Book of the Year in 2013 by the Wrestling Observer, so I think it's a sign of quality. And we also have some uh, DVDs available through iSpots.com and RSVideo.com with the best of Montreal wrestling uh, from the 70s and 80s, whatever is still available out there, it's on those DVDs. So I would suggest to anyone who missed good old-time wrestling to go and check those DVDs out. And thank you guys for having us. I'd, I'd love Thanks. to have you guys back, you know, because we just scratched the surface yeah. tonight. I I had wanted okay. to uh, get your opinion on the infamous Montreal Screwjob, which we uh, didn't even cover that base yet. So I'd love to uh, have you guys back another time. Maybe we can... Uh, Explore some of those things and uh, and uh, good luck on the book. I uh, I just got a chance uh, to read it uh, this weekend and I uh, couldn't put it down. I uh, gained a lot of uh, insight. There was a lot, even, even though I've been around the business for forty plus years, there was a lot a lot of okay. uh, things Real that uh, I didn't know that I found out in there. So it was very uh, informative and enlightening. So. Real quick, Bruce. Um, not to, um, everybody that everybody that's here, uh, we do have a surprise guest that, that's calling us. We're going to bring him in now. I want um, to say okay. welcome to Hubby Radio. Welcome to Hubby Radio. Welcome to Hubby Radio. Thank you, Mike. Okay, congratulations. Hey. It's a great book. Yes, welcome Thank to Hubby Radio. Thank you for calling in. Hey, uh, how are you doing? This is, uh, um, are you guys ready for me? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> you bet we are ready. Hey, <laughs> hey it's uh, it's Mick Foley calling in. Great to hear you, uh, your voice, Mick. Uh, thanks for uh, gracing us with your presence. It's uh, it's a uh, thrill. Hey, I appreciate. It. I got a little worried. My wife said, "Yeah, they called us at something about nine thirty, and I thought, or 10, I thought it was nine thirty, and I still got my AMs and PMs." <laughs> 
Oh, no, no, surely it's not a nine yeah a nine thirty a.m. Uh, uh, radio show. But glad glad to be with you guys. Yeah, who, who's still on here? I don't. <laughs> which guys are I'm still here. on here, Evan? I'm still here. Yes, we have um we have a uh, Pat Lepra uh Pat Laprade on. We still have uh Bertrand yes. Herbert, and I believe we still have uh Michelle Dubois on. Mike Mike the Judge Dubois. Yeah, you know, Alexei Smirnov in the United States and Japan. You know, are you familiar with Alexei uh, Mick? Yeah, sure am. Yeah, sure oh, am. Yeah, I, 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 uh, uh, I, well, I uh, was studying my uh, my Japanese wrestling tapes <laughs> uh, back in the day, <laughs> and I'd, I'd watch up to twelve hours of uh, uh, wrestling a day in the uh, late eighties, early nineties, and uh, yeah, I saw Alexei's work uh, there. So, and then obviously. If you know your history, you you got to know that name. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. That that's one of the things I uh, enjoy about the show is uh, I get some of these legends like you guys, and uh, you guys get a chance to revisit or hook up. You know? <laughs> I always love just sitting back and uh, hearing uh, interactive stories about uh, places you guys have been or things you've uh been involved with in the past or guys that you're mutual friends of like maybe Terry Funk and some of that you know so oh yeah but, I mean uh, I've been in Japan 31 tour and, wow uh, I work I work with some of the best uh, yeah I work with uh, 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 Russia Kimura which uh, they give me the strap up there it doesn't happen too often and um, I work with uh, Bruiser Brody. I work with uh, uh, Inui, Yagamuchi, Giant Baba, Jumbo Taruda, Antonio Inoki, Fujinami. I mean, I, I wrestled them all. I did 10 years. I was going three times a year in Japan. So it was. Uh, this is the time when Japan was big and you were making good money to go up there, you know. So, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You had to yeah. be a pretty good worker to get in there back in the day, so it speaks yes. speaks well yeah. of your ability because uh, most guys, uh, I know a lot of guys, uh, you know, couldn't crack the roster over there. It was pretty uh, pretty yeah. tough to get in there for a lot of the Americans, so that's to your credit. Yeah, well, it was, uh, you know, it was pretty tough because Japan, it was no, the difference between Japan and the United States and Canada, I will tell you, then. First of all, they wrestle harder than we do. And, different, uh, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, also, you're going to do business with your match. There's no interview up there. A guy like Dusty Rose and uh, Roddy Piper, an example, without talk bad about them, I mean, uh, they had our time, you know, I mean, they, they make it around here. With, uh, you know, a good talker was a good talker. Dusty Rose was an excellent talker. Roddy Piper was a great talker. But if you were not a good talker, I mean, uh, you could not make it in the States. Oh, yeah, that's the reason why. Guys like Dynam Dynamite and Davey over there, but the Jap yeah. offices, wouldn't, they would kind of take a pass on Honky Tonk Man, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. I, yeah, I remember the, uh, to this day, I think it was 86. Uh, gr good friend of mine, Brian Hildebrand, who uh, uh, refereed for WCW as uh, uh, Mark Curtis, and he was uh, uh, Jim Cornette's right-hand man in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He introduced me to the uh, 
the world of Japanese wrestling. And, man, that was the first uh, Dynamite Kid um, Tiger Mask match I saw. And there was another great uh-huh. match. It was, it was Carl Gotch, you know, like up in his 60s uh, against, and I, I don't know the name of his opponent, but they were doing so many cool things. Like just a couple of years ago when I was working for uh, – TNA, I, I pulled aside the Motor City Machine Guns, and I was like, hey, man, you guys do some stuff that reminds me of things that Carl Gotch was doing. So I ended up passing on like, this old VHS <laughs> tape from 1986 to these guys who were doing, like, all these flying moves in, uh, you know, in 2010, and uh, next time, uh, next TV taping, they were doing a couple of things that Carl Gotch did. So always something you can pick up. And it's interesting to see how the different styles can, uh, you know, can, can blend. Yes. Yeah, that was yes. one of the beauties, and that's that's one of the things uh, that I'd like to see more of in the business these days, you know, but it's, I don't know if that'll ever happen just because... Uh, well, it's no place to do it, you know, I mean, yeah. if you're not working for New York, uh, there's nowhere where you can go and uh, and work, you know, I that's mean... One uh, of the nice things, uh, Bruce, I think about Stampede is that so many of the guys who came by had been elsewhere in many places and uh you know a lot of the guys had been to japan as well as europe and and so there was a great cross-section of styles which always makes for uh for good for good matches not always oh yeah it was incredible the, great the, matches, the uh, yeah. you know uh i'd love to have had guys like uh you and uh mike the judge on <laughs> up here <laughs> <laughs> during that stretch, because you guys would have added one more dimension. You know? <laughs> it's, it's like you said, though, we had the uh, the Japanese, and we had the British, and we had the French Canadians, and we had a few of the southern guys like Schultz and Honky Tonk, and uh, a few of the Dorian Terry's uh, guys. You know, and it was it was an incredible melting pot, though. You know, and uh, it all blended in, though. You know, nobody was sort of. You know, uh, allowed to uh, kind of, uh, you know, do only their own thing. They all had to mesh with the other guys, you know. You know, it's funny. You mentioned David Schultz. I was on a tour of the Caribbean with David Schultz in 1987. And uh, in the advertising, they were pressing Stampede Wrestling, pushing the fact that he'd been Stampede as much as they were WWE. So I'm not even sure if you guys knew that your, your, your tapes aired over there. But, uh, I think they were pirated or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> that I know my be. dad told me he got a a, a, a formal letter from Edie Amin, who was the dictator in Uganda. Oh, in Uganda, yeah. Back in the, I think it was back in the 70s or early 80s, and uh, he was telling my dad he was a huge fan and wanted to uh, <laughs> bring... Uh, the, odd, the odd thing about it that made me laugh was... The guys that Edie Men was talking about were from about 15 years earlier, like Sweet Daddy Siki. Oh, <laughs> no kidding. Sweet Daddy Siki. He wanted these guys to come in and was offering my dad a, a king's ransom and a personalized jet fare and a stay in the palace. <laughs> but he he wanted like Sweet Daddy Siki and a bunch of these guys from the 60s. And my dad was... Kind of, you know, uh, it's funny because uh, I wrestled in Nigeria a few times in '87, and uh, and they would just show whatever it was they felt like showing. And so the biggest star in Nigeria was Mighty Igor, 
and uh, and they would just replay. I don't know if they had a year's worth of tapes. Like Mr. Haiti was the promoter, so they would splice in like a couple of TV matches he had for New York. And when they wanted me to work with their champion, we just uh, we we uh, did a show in New York City from about sixty or seventy people, and then they just spliced that into the tape. So you'd have a a tape I did at a recreation center with Power Udi uh, in New York City, uh, going alongside with a, an old WWE tape of uh, WWF tape of Mr. Haiti and uh, and Mighty Igor from from twenty years earlier. <laughs> Jeez, maybe there's a, a a career for some of these. Guys that are still alive. <laughs> Maybe Abby well, when can I make hear, one more. You know, when I everyone it seems like who's been over to to Nigeria's got you know great, not great, awful stories which make for great stories. Uh, and yeah. if I can make a clumsy segue here, Bruce, to my uh, upcoming shows, um, like I'm looking at the, uh, I'm looking at the the presale and like Edmonton, Edmonton and Calgary and Red Deer, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, like they're all going pretty well, but a couple of these smaller towns in British Columbia, I looked like I had to call my uh, my agent back. I was like, wait a second, we sold five tickets in, in Vernon, <laughs> what British Columbia. Out there, like, Vernon, we're uh, doing all these little towns: Maple Ridge, Revelstoke, Vernon, and we're just rolling the dice. Whoa. And, uh, uh, and who's your uh, agent? You, <laughs> Well, this Hopefully. is a guy, you know, who knows? It all they're telling me, hey, it's a walk-up town. But instead of looking at it, like, immediately, my first impression was, oh, this is going to be a disaster. And then my second thought was, which is great. I haven't had one of those in a while. Like, <laughs> they make for the best stories. Like, when I'm on, you know, when I'm on stage, the stories I talk about from my wrestling days are either the greatest stories or the worst stories. Like, no one wants to hear about a three-star match. You know? no, no one wants to no. hear about the time you had half a crowd, you know, like seven, you know, 7,000 people at the Garden. They either want to hear about, you know, when I, when you, I wrestled and there were 200 people in the 23,000-seat MGM uh, Grand Hotel and Arena, or or they want to hear you know the the, the Japanese stuff and the the stuff that's so strange you couldn't uh, possibly write it. Yeah, I unfortunately have done more than a few of those. Uh, you know, two hundred or probably uh, maybe about twenty people in a you know some big building and uh, you know. All of the uh, everything that could conceivably go wrong, going wrong, and all that other, you know. I remember we had one. I won't digress here, but I remember my dad had. Uh, I think it was Harley and uh, I think Junkyard Dog, who was a, a face for us at that time. But uh, somehow they got the ring to the wrong town, and uh, so we had no damn ring. But we actually had a pretty good house down in Billings, Montana, and. Uh, <laughs> So you put Junkyard some mats on the floor, right? So Har- Harley, uh, you know, uh, who was pretty strong-willed, said we're going to work anyway. So they ended up having the damned uh, match on the floor, you know, about a 5,000-people crowd, which is pretty good for Billings. And uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> Harley, uh, being Harley, uh, still wanted to take the high backdrops. Yeah. <laughs> 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 And uh, I remember it was memorable. You know, it's probably one of the stiffest. Uh, and uh, 
Harley uh, also decreed that they were going to do some time. I think Junkyard was looking to get out of there in five minutes, and I think they went like 45 minutes. <laughs> and, oh, man. But, yeah. Be- better man than me, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, uh, I can't say it was a five-star match, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of etched in my memory, though. But, yeah, those were some of the things that you almost uh, are, are missing these days, you know, those things like that or the the broken down vehicles and the all that other kind of you know life on the road type stuff that uh most people never have any clue about you know i had a guy uh stop me a few uh, about a month ago um in one of the midwestern uh united states uh states it was it, it was possibly indiana and he looks at me he goes do you remember me i said you look familiar, and he goes, I learned more from wrestling you in three days than I did in all of my, you know, whatever number of years. I said, I said, Ohio. And I I remembered every single thing about it. And the reason that he was telling me that is because he didn't agree with the ideas that I had at that time. You know, he had, he had broken in a different way, and I was doing what we uh, – you know what I thought was best, and I remember uh, along with uh, uh, Mark Curtis. You know, on the last day of the tour, we <laughs> slipped slipped him over without letting him know, and it, he thought there'd been some awful mistake. You know, like his, his <laughs> winning celebration was a very confused winning celebration. But the reason I remember all that is because it was such a dreadful tour, and the and I said in that last day when we finally drew a good house, last day of like the four day run. We look around and the promoter's gone. He's literally left town, like <laughs> left the building with the money. And me, Mark Curtis, Wahoo McDaniel, and uh, Del Del Wilkes, who used to be the uh, the Patriot. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we're outside the guy's house, looking, you know, looking <laughs> for our money. And the police show up, and there's no way you remember that that sh- those shows if everything went pretty well. You know, like like I said, you really only remember the things that go really bad or the ones that go really well. <laughs> well, wow, that's that a right. good story. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that like, Alexi, when you were when you were working um, Japan? What 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 years were those? Uh, I started in '77, and uh, I wrestled till '87. Yeah, yeah, because that's yeah. I would have caught a lot of those things. I was watching a lot of things from the the late uh, mid to late eighties. That was and, three offices uh, still then. I did the three offices. I did the uh, international. Oki Baba, uh, and then the, the international. Yeah. Shimmer. Which or one? The, can I ask which Mr. one you enjoyed Yushiara. the most? The one I enjoyed the most was uh, Mr. Yoshiara. No kidding. And, yeah, it was international. I really uh, had a good time with them, and uh, they were very fair with me. And uh, after that, uh, I enjoyed Babo, uh, the office of Babo. I did that for three years, and after that, I did two years with uh, Inoki. So I did a total of ten years. Hey, that's great. Yeah, I did. I did a bunch of tours, but they're all kind of jammed into a. 15 month period where I would go for 10 days uh 10 days a month for uh, one of the smaller uh smaller promotions. By that time you had the the two the big two big groups Inoki and Baba and then there would be like up to 37 little groups, you know, and so Terry Funk yeah, had yeah. just joined IWA and and uh 
up until that point, like I honestly hadn't felt like I couldn't actually point to any place I'd been where I'd actually could say, hey, I drew money or I helped build that territory. And uh, so uh, I, uh, I knew I'd get the chance to wrestle Terry, and we set about trying to, you know, build that little promotion. That's why I took, you know, I took so much pride in what I did over there because it was the first yeah. real chance I had, um, you know, to try to make a difference. Well, if you, um, I mean, uh, international, I had the chance to be tag team partner with uh, Andre the Giant and uh, Matt Dagvachan, you know. So, I mean, they, this it was some great talent. Uh, that means and, you were taking uh, a lot of... Uh, taking a hell of a lot of bumps, I'm sure, Mike. Uh... <laughs> I've always been a bum taker, you know. And uh, I really enjoyed to work for them, you know. I mean, uh, they gave me the strap, you know, and uh, business was picking up, you know, and they were happy when they when they had me, you know. I mean, they, you know, they were telling me, hey, Mrs. Smirnoff, you want to come back, you know, anytime, just give us a call, you know. And three times a year was enough for me, you know, so... But I really enjoyed them. And this yes, before. Oh, go ahead. Those are two of the legends, uh, the two names that you guys mentioned that are sort of on a pedestal above everyone else, Terry Funk and Andre the Giant. They're sort of like oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, iconic. Funk, and yeah. I don't think yeah. I've ever heard any any wrestler say anything but great things about either of those two guys, so, uh, myself yeah. included. So. Yeah, yeah, Terry Funk, yeah, he he worked in Japan so hard, you know, and I mean he he's the one who carried a load for a long time for Baba. And uh Yeah, it was amazing to see he was uh, almost like worshipped there, you know, like idol or yeah. idolized. You know, he yeah. was like yeah. bigger than uh and then uh, you know, unfortunately <laughs> he did the same thing I ended up, I ended up doing much later uh in WWE which is retiring and, you know, like kind of at his peak and then coming back. And it's like, yeah. you know, you can never, I think everyone's got one real comeback in them. And then after that, I think people can correctly assume that uh, you're coming back for the for the money. <laughs> you know? you got so, I, uh, <laughs> so I had my real comeback in 2004. And uh, then, you know, it still did a couple good things over the years. But uh, I have always you had, so have I, you had your final match, Mick? Or you, yeah, you, you know what? I mean, uh, I'm not saying there's not like a WrestleMania 50 Battle Royal that I might part- <laughs> you know, participate in. Or who knows, maybe, you know, like maybe I, I might do the type of thing that Brett did with uh, Mr. McMahon at WrestleMania where it's, you know, a pretty much uh, oh, yeah. I guarantee that you're as as not going to take pretext, them. You know, as long as there's some <laughs> justifiable pretext yeah. for it, there's always uh, room for one more. Yeah, I but, ask, but I, I seriously doubt it because medically I'm not cleared to do anything. Uh, but, you ne- you know, you never say never. No. Yeah, I mean, could ask you, is, do you think Undertaker's done or... Man, it's hard to say because uh, I was shocked when, uh, uh, you know, the, like a photo of The Undertaker showed up of him just hanging out with his kids and with his wife. Maybe, you know, I, I joked around during my Hall of Fame induction speech and said, like, I didn't want to live in a world where The Undertaker starts tweeting. You know, like it just, would, <laughs> just, just wouldn't seem right to see, like, LOL, Undertaker. Uh, but maybe, you know, being like the mysterious guy, like as, as cool as that is, you know, like, you know, having this like larger than life character, 
you know, maybe when you're, you know, his age, I think he's 49 or 50, about the same age as I am. Maybe when you're 50 and you've got kids, like, you don't want to worry about secrecy and privacy all the time. And, and maybe by, like, putting his photos out there, it kind of takes the pressure off. You know, like, uh, I, I haven't had I haven't had that. I've been able to live kind of a, a normal. The only thing that's not normal is that when I walk down the street every now and then, people, hey, Mick Foley. Like, it's really not a pain in the neck. But if you're the undertaker and you're like, your life has been under this veil of, uh, you know, cloak of, like, you know, mystery, yeah. and, you know, the idea that some guy takes a picture of him and everyone's shocked because his beard is gray, you know, like, that's like a big news, a photo of the undertaker. That's, that's actually, like, more pressure than just walking around being that guy who gets recognized once in a while. Yeah, I was intrigued with all the... Uh the mystery even when he uh you know I, I still don't know what was true or made up or uh oh, you know when street, he when right? he did the job you know I, I heard that it was not by design and then i've heard that it was and i you know of course they had that uh bogus rumor that he had died and all the others so it, it was intriguing i never really uh caught up on what actually transpired or if it was just sort of uh as went according to plan, or the whole thing was kind of changed on the fly, or what, you know? You know what? He came to to one of my shows in Texas, and Versailles is like so flattered to have him there. And yeah, uh, and such like a nice guy think, too. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. And out of respect, I didn't say, "Hey, can we take a picture?" Or, "Hey, you want to do the Q and A?" It was just, uh, it was really cool to have him there, and I kind of, uh, you know, like made it an Undertaker-centric show. And then, uh, you know, when he kind of just, you know, bailed out like two minutes before the finish, I, t- I told him when the finish was, and then kind of broke it to everyone that The Undertaker had been in the room, and it was like just a hush came over the... <laughs> <laughs> like the idea that that he came to my show made the show somehow more important. And it's going to be that way. Like, uh, you're, are you coming to the show in Calgary, Bruce? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I'm i looking forward to it. I'm uh my kids are huge fans of yours, so I'm uh, hoping to bring a few of them by to to introduce you. And uh, I've got one uh, handicapped son who's uh, an incredible McFoley fan. So uh, he's yeah, man, I would love to. This is a all excited about uh, meeting you in person and uh, sort of. Uh, I think he's listening on the uh, extension phone. He might. Hey, well, uh, hey, well, what's his name, Bruce? Uh, Rhett. All right, Rhett, I'll be looking forward to seeing you, okay? Yeah, he'll be uh, there, and he's uh, all counting the days, so he's excited <laughs> about that. If you, know, you want to throw usually, a plug uh, out there, Mick, uh, just uh, tell us one more time when and uh, when and where. Oh, yeah, the yeah, exact... yeah. I mean, I'm all, um, just in case people from different parts of Canada or the U.S. are, are listening, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow. Uh, um for uh, Vancouver, and I start a 17-city trip through B.C. and Alberta. starts out in Maple Ridge, B.C., and Vernon, Kamloops, uh, Prince George, and then we head over to uh, to Alberta, and we'll be hitting uh, Red Deer and Medicine Hat, Calgary, Edmonton, Lethbridge. Uh, maybe I'm missing a couple other ones. Then we head back to some other cities on our way back to uh, towards Vancouver, and if people want to go to any of the shows, it's uh, realmickfoley.com, and then just click on events. Um, with the exception of Edmonton and Calgary, I think every show is a theater show, uh, so it's all ages. 
uh, Calgary and uh, uh, Edmonton are in clubs, so uh, I think there's a the, there's an 18 plus. But it's a it's a fun show. I curse just only once or twice during entire. <laughs> I look at the, the the big curse for it like it's my finishing move, and if. Uh, I can get a standing O for the one, you know, the, the one bad word. That's when I know I've done my job, you know. And I'll even tell people, I say, I, look, I, I don't have anything against, you know, the, the bad language. I said, uh, I said, uh, I'm going to use that steel chair, just not in the first couple minutes of the match, you know. Like it's a oh yeah, bad language is like a, a high spot, you know. You do it at the right time and place, or it's kind yeah, of yeah, oh, man, wasted, so, it feels know. so much like a match, you know, and. And uh, oh, after yeah. shows, when I know I've like made mistakes, I'm like, like getting ah. color or <laughs> taking a big yeah, bump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you pace yourself and you try to build to a big finish. Uh, everything I learned in life, I basically learned through wrestling. Oh yeah, it, it's it's probably given you an incredible education and uh, one you could probably uh, impart to uh, Barack and uh, George W. <laughs> or, <laughs> I could, oh. uh, you know what? I I I I, uh, I remember them. I know I'm shifting gears, but uh, in November I've got a movie that I really helped. I started as a subject on, and I became a hands-on producer and even helped with the editing. Uh, it's a documentary on uh, Santa Claus and people who oh. you know portray the iconic figure, and it's a lot like wrestling in that you take a guy who. You know, for six weeks a year, people are lining up, you know, like walking up onto a platform where this guy in regal robes decides at his sole discretion whether or not they're yeah. where they're getting toys. And then the uh, the director just wondered, like, hey, what do these guys do? I'm talking about the guys with the, the, the full beards who, you know, basically, you know, kind of live their the rest of the, the other 11 months with an eye on that one month a year, you know, and uh, and it reminded me of the business, you know, it really did, you know, because, look, you get some guys, you know, who are on the, uh, the supermarket aisle and the uh, their action figures right next to Spider-Man and then one call from Vince and it's like their whole lives have changed. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But, oh, but the reason I brought that up is, is one of the Santas, <laughs> it sounds like a rib, but there is an actual <laughs> Santa Claus Hall of Fame. Uh, oh. <laughs> there's like an actual destination in a. Uh, hopefully, it's in not the town of Paul. <laughs> no, no, it's it's almost it's in Santa Claus, Indiana, in a building called Santa's Candy Castle, which is arguably the oldest uh, themed attraction in the U.S. And one of the guys who's in the Hall of Fame kind of cut a promo on me about <laughs> about a movie he hadn't even seen yet that hadn't even released, just based on what he heard. And I got hot about it, and I was like, and I and I, you know, wrote back to him, and I said, well, no one likes to be, you know, lectured by a, a Hall of Fame Santa. I said, maybe I don't have the time into the red suit that you've had, but hey, man, I've wrestled in 49 states and 37 countries over the course of 29 years, and if I have an opinion, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share it. Like I kind of came firing back with that sense that. What I learned in wrestling has been an invaluable education, and I'd put it up against, you know, what anyone would learn in, in college right. or politics or any other type of business. Oh, yeah, the and, Jesse and Ventura not, syndrome, yeah. And not to kind of bite off, um, first we have about um, 32 seconds left in the show. I want to thank you, uh, Mr. McFoley, for calling in. Uh, thank everybody for calling to Heartbeat Radio. We thank uh, Pat LaPrade and Bertrand Herbert. We also 
I um, thank uh, Michelle DeBow for calling in. Um, everybody, please stay tuned with more Heart Rate Radio. Once this goes off, we will have an archive episode that will be available for you to listen at later on today with promoter and wrestling promoter David Feller. Um, Bruce Hart, any last words? Okay, um, thank you very like, much. Hey, thanks like for letting me enjoy talking with you. Yes, uh, it was my pleasure to hear from you. And uh, keep the good word. I will. Yeah. Right. Bruce, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you for having me on. Bye now. Uh, I Anytime. hope we can uh, have all of you guys back. Uh, just scratch yes. the surface here. So, yes. I'll uh, be much my pleasure appreciated. anytime. Thank okay. you very much. Say hey. okay, hi to your brother. I shall. Thank you. Okay. okay. Bye. Welcome. Bruce, you still there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks, everyone. I appreciate it. Thanks very no much, problem. Mick. Thank I'll you, uh, look forward to seeing you next week. All right. Yeah, Bruce, um, how, how old are your kids? Um, My youngest is like 22 or something. Oh, okay. Like that. All right. All right. So they're well. All right. No no need. Yeah, I've got um, what I didn't say on the, the air was uh, you usually get like, you know, four to six comps. And so my my uh, publicist, she's a little surprised, like, I need 20, <laughs> 20. Twenty. You set aside twenty tickets for the Hart family, and she's oh, that's like, awesome! Well, uh, yeah, yeah. So tell anyone. You know, Natty was there yeah. last time, and uh, uh, one of one of your brothers was there. Yeah, um, I'm gonna call call uh, and uh, uh, find out. I'm sure that they'd uh, love to take it in. And uh, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, yeah. And I love having you guys there. So yeah, just, hopefully we can grab a. Coffee or uh, or bite eat after, depending on your schedule. See how it goes. I would I would love it. I would really really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, yeah. Bruce. Uh, thanks I'll very talk much. To you, uh, I, hey, you got it. Okay. Thank, thank, thank you. you very much. All right. We'll see hey, you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, right, hey, Bruce. Uh, okay. I believe this is an archive episode of Heartbeat Radio. This is Evan Pro, host on the Matt Radio, filling in, and we're here live with Bruce Hart. I believe right now we're bringing in David Fuller, I believe. Yeah, uh, Dave Fuller. Yes, we're going to bring him in right Hi. now. <laughs> well, welcome to Hotbeat Radio. This is Evan Pro, who's under the radio, filling in with Bruce Hart. This is David Fuller. Hi, Dave. How are you? Yeah. I'm good, Bruce. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I uh, appreciate your coming on, and uh, I've been told you got a great uh concept or uh initiative going on with your uh online uh show if you could fill me in or fill our listeners in on uh how how that's shake taking shape and uh love to hear all about us. Oh no problem Bruce. I appreciate the opportunity. I run IHWE professional wrestling out of Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, I was broken in nineteen ninety eight by Johnny Valentine. <coughs> He started me into the business before he passed away in 2001. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great guy to be teaching you. Yes, yes, I was very blessed. Uh, uh, I've been running shows off and on pretty much for the last 16 years since the day I broke in. I just kind of took a, uh, I don't know what it was, I just took an interest in promoting, and I worked a little as well, but my main thing was promoting and booking. Uh, of course, I was in Fort Worth, Texas, so obviously I grew up during the world-class era, 
Oh yeah, you must have a lot of, a few Von Erich stories. Yes, yes. Uh you know, World Class had such wonderful television uh over the years and there's been a few promotions down here that have that have tried it. So um also like I started the Texas Wrestling Hall of Fame last few years. It's now the Southern Wrestling Hall of Fame. I'll talk to you about that here in a second. But basically what I came up with is when I decided to start running shows again this year back in June is uh, I, I took three years off, got married, had a son, and then uh, I took three years off as far as promoting. I was still involved with the business. Uh, but I decided to do something. I was like, you know, and, and this isn't something so revolutionary. There's a few promotions that do do it. But I decided to, uh, I wanted to do television. I've never done television before. But in today's day and age, I was like, it, doesn't, it didn't make sense for me to go to local stations and buy time because the best times you can get and afford it, unless you've just got great sponsors, which is very hard to do nowadays for independent promotions, is usually one or two, three, four, five o'clock in the morning on pretty not great stations. So I was like, well, you know what? It's today. It's this day and age. And I'm a huge – I love technology. I love where technology has brought us as far as streaming and so many ways you can enjoy entertainment, uh, television, sports movies television so i was like you know what we're going to do we're going to we're going to shoot for television we're going to shoot a traditional wrestling show every week just like you would watch on television and we're going to do it on youtube and that's what we've oh, done that's good we how, have, did you just film it yourself or do you have your own commentators or how does that work all that we have i mean it, you, if you watch it you couldn't you it looks just like a Standard, typical, old school wrestling show with commentators, with videos, with build-up promos. Next week, last week, all that good stuff, and it's on YouTube. Well, and the that's cool. Like, yeah. The things, the things I like I'm, about it is, is, is uh, not to cut you off. I don't have any time constraints. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to fill 22 minutes with commercials. I don't have to fill 47 minutes with commercials. You know, I can go however long we want. One, the first week we went 27 minutes. The next week we went 47 minutes. We try to stay 30 minutes every week. But so far, the first episode within a week got 500 views. That was the first week. And then every week since then, we've averaged anywhere from about 150 to 200 views before the Whoa. next episode starts. That's that sounds like a hell of a concept, you know. I certainly uh, I wish you well on that. I uh, I'll have to hook up with you off the air sometime, and because uh, I think there's uh, I think there's a lot of room for some something like that. And I said it for a long time. I think a lot of these smaller promotions or indie promotions are backyard promotions or whatever they're called uh <laughs> right i think they need to be uh i think they need to be working with each other more but but they also need to be uh establishing some kind of uh framework or guidelines for what the hell they perceive wrestling to be and all like that i know i uh i used to talk to my dad a lot back in the day in uh I was always very intrigued about the original uh, development or formation of the NWA. And, uh, yes. 
And he told me the real uh, kind of uh, genesis or the real kind of uh, reason for the uh, formation of the NWA was because he likened it to the uh, movie The Godfather, but he said they had all these, uh, you know, families or promotions that were kind of undercutting and screwing each other and sabotaging each other and all this other and and uh it was really uh kind of ruining the business and uh he said they uh finally uh you know decided to uh work together and they kind of established some guidelines and they had a champion and they started swapping talent and they started kind of establishing some kind of uh you know, uh, you know standards for what wrestling was and all this other, and uh, it all kind of, uh, you know, was of great benefit to the business. You know, and I think that's one of the big problems with the business as it stands today, because there is a lot of indie promotions and a lot of small promotions and all this other, but. Uh, biggest mistake most of them make that I see they're all trying to be a second rate copy of WWE and uh and they there's not too much of a standard to uh, too many of them there's too many guys that don't look like they have any business being wrestlers sure. pretending to and be I wrestlers I agree and with you 100% and there's too many gimmicks and too many uh mm-hmm. artificial additives and too much uh, wanton uh, exposés, you know. Even and I've I've said it for years. Uh, regardless of whether WWE has openly declared it's a work or all this other, uh, it's still our job to protect the business. Yeah, you still play your damn cards like a poker game. You still play your cards yeah. close to the and best. And what we do, Bruce. What I think you would like about what we do is. You see, I'm I'm 33 years old, and I've been in the business since I was 16. I'm not your grizzled veteran, but I I love the old school. With our commissioner, the guy who yeah. plays our on-air authority figure is Black Bart. We have we combine old school and new school together. At our next show, we have a big live event Sunday night, September 28th here in Fort Worth, and the lineup we have on this show is unbelievable. We have Jim Cornette, who is now our global ambassador. He's actually working with us to get our message across. Yeah, he's working with us. Stan Delariot Hansen is going to be there. Yeah, old buddies of mine, yeah. Yeah. Lynn Denton. Yeah, I will. Lynn Denton, the grappler, is returning to Texas for the first time in 20 years. Class of 1979. Yeah, Charlie Haas is going to be there. He's wrestling for us that night. Yeah, a nice Uh, guy too, Charlie. Lance Lance Hoyt's going to be there, who's a big star in New Japan Pro Wrestling. I mean, we have Kyle O'Reilly. He's one half of the Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions. In addition to our Texas talent, what we do is we take old school and new school and mesh them together. And I try to follow what I saw when I was a kid down here. We can't be world class. We can't be WWE. I don't want to. I don't want to be WWE. I don't want to be WWE Texas, and I don't want to be world class championship wrestling because they were WWE. It is what it is, and when they come to town, everybody goes because there's only one WWE. I just want to oh, be. 
Yeah, I all you're doing that's is that's all uh, I want to be. <laughs> you know, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. So all you're yeah. doing is flattering them and de- degrading exactly. yourself. Yeah, exactly. I had that same Tell issue me. back back in the uh, '80s, Dave, and I uh, like WWE was Hulkamania and all that, and uh, mm-hmm. I was almost almost like bound and determined, you know, to be anything but a copy of that and uh that's when i developed some of my best guys uh dynamite sure. and uh pillman and ben one owen and right. uh, guys like that you know and they almost had like a an abiding disdain for the wwe where they uh wanted to be anything but whatever uh was the uh prevailing thing in wwe ultimate warrior or whatever you know and and it was uh, very car- it was very cartoonish it was very cartoonish yeah, then, you know. I uh, I applaud you for. Uh, it takes more guts to be uh, charting your own course than to be like a lemming copying and following the pre-existing norms and bringing in a bunch of old washed-up, uh, you know, cartoon characters from now back in, back in the I, day and all that other. You I know? you know Jim you know Jim's come on we've had many and Jim's coming down to. You know, he's going to promote us. Stan, I've gotten to know Stan over the last couple of years. We uh, we also have Bruiser Brody's wife, Barbara Goodish, coming in. Oh, yeah. I, we, I am so, you know, endeared to the guys that drew money, not just got a job because of who they knew or how they looked. You know, I'm not going to bring in people that were Hogan's buddies working for Vince. I'm going <laughs> to bring in people. I know the guys you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. you know, exactly. I think everybody does because they had jobs for way too long. So I mean, well, too many of them are like old whores looking for one more payday, yeah. and they and they don't I'm, I'm a, want to do I'm anything for you. Yeah, I'm a nobody. I, I'm as compared to to everybody I'm talking about. But and the, and the thing is, is now it looks, and I could be wrong. It looks like WWE is now depending on the independents. And the international circuit more than ever with the people that have come through their developmental territory. So I feel like it's my duty. I feel like it's my duty to put out a product that people can watch all across the world. Because with YouTube, you can watch it anytime, anywhere in the world, on any kind of device you want to. We put out a family show. It's PG. A family of four can pull it up on their television via their YouTube app and watch it. Parents don't have to worry about seeing something they don't need to see because I won't put on that kind of show. Um, And, I mean, I want my talent down here to get seen by a promoter up in New York, and I want the promoter bringing my talent from down here up there. That's what I want. So, you know. I would think at some point, you know, uh, like you were mentioning before about WWE and some of their aspirations and all like that, but uh, as I was saying earlier in the broadcast, uh, even if WWE and I'm told they have some new state-of-the-art training place and all this other, yeah. uh, which is all well and good, but uh, if they actually think that's the uh, be-all and end-all, they're missing the point altogether. The, the, the thing that's really missing in the wrestling business, and, and the, like back in the Ted Turner days, they had this place called the Power Plant down Power in plant. Atlanta, and same kind of thing, you know. And, but uh, 
regardless of whether you got a state of the art ten ring chrome, you know, bullshit facility to train wrestlers, you still need that intermediary which is the uh you know, the two or three year span where guys just go out and work. Sure. And uh smoky little arenas and uh traveling on the road and talking to the veterans and that's right. the thing that's missing. Uh, I trained more guys than probably damn near anyone down in the dungeon, and the dungeon was pretty, you know, uh, salt of the earth. It wasn't chrome and mirrors and all the other, but uh, it, sure. it served the purpose, you know. Uh, guys right. learned how to, and uh, so when, when I hear all this stuff where they got a state-of-the-art power, you know, uh, new training facility in Florida or Atlanta or wherever, I sort of, frankly, roll my eyes and uh, and say they're missing the damn point. What the business needs more than anything right now is not only these places, like there used to be so many of them, like Calgary and Amarillo and Portland and all like that, but you also need to reestablish and regenerate the fan base at those levels where those fans are being able to see wrestling on a regular basis in uh, Fort Worth or Amarillo or Lubbock or uh, Albuquerque or Clovis or all these places, you know. And um, that's the biggest thing that's missing. You know, if you if you look at any other sport, if you took the NFL and say the NFL, you know, back in the 90s, it conspired to get rid of college football and high school football and all these other, you know, and, uh, you know, and now they were having to re-sow the seeds at the grassroots. You know, that would be one of the first things you tell them is it's all well and good. You have artificial turf and some state-of-the-art place to teach people how to pass and run and kick and all like that, but you still need to have the fan base that you've completely destroyed which is the grassroots of wrestling, and that's what you need to reestablish, and that's the biggest threat to this business. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm happy to see initiatives like yours. But like I was saying, uh, I think there needs to be some cohesion with these smaller promotions. They have to start working with each other. They also have to reestablish what the hell wrestling is. That's one of the big problems. Some of them I see, and uh, I get good vibes from the initiatives that you're talking about because you mentioned the word old school and uh, all of that, which is a critical part of it. But so many of the ones I see, and I get tapes all the time, and I see stuff, and, and I sort of shake my head, and it's, it's almost uh, everything that's wrong with the business summed up in one. You know, got people that don't look like athletes, got guys doing blade jobs, and you got guys with fucked up costumes, and you got all these yeah. non-wrestling. Yeah, you know, I was proud. I was proud. I, I hadn't run a show in three years before June 8th of this year, and we busted our butt. We promoted like crazy. We have we have a wonderful venue. We have a venue that looks like a wrestling show should be there. It's not a parking lot. It's not the back room of the local flea market. Uh, we've done shows in the parking lot in the back of the flea market. We've done it. We did it when we had to do it, but that was a long time ago. But this facility where we're running, we ran in June. We're running again in two weeks, 
from tonight. We ran in June 8th. We drew 510 people. We sold the place out. And, I mean, that, that doesn't sound like a big number, Bruce. You've worked oh, in four uh, or five times the amount of that. But today well, to I thought it, sounds, it was good. It sounds like a pretty damn big number to me because, you know, uh, I know that uh, most of the so-called indies or whatever, you know, they're lucky to draw a hundred, you know, and, uh, yeah. and in part it's their own fault too, because their products, like I said, not very good. And there's not much method to the madness, but I'd love to get with you sometime. Cause, uh, sure. it, it, it's a very, uh, it's a simple thing, but you know, like when you talk in these, uh, kind of, cliches you have to actually go back to square one and you almost got to kind of reestablish like you said you know old school and in order to reestablish old school you actually have to know what the hell old school is yeah. <laughs> you know it's one thing to talk about old school guys that you're wearing wool tights and cauliflowered ears and grabbing right. a hold or whatever but there's you know calgary was as old school as any promotion yeah. in the world, yet I agree. it was, uh, you know, the guys there were incredible workers. You know, they were old school Dynamite Kid and Brett and, uh, you know, Davey Boy and Owen and Benoit Pillman and guys like that. But they they certainly weren't lacking for, you know, action or they weren't kind of yeah. uh, boring, you know. And no, not at all. They 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 were uh, the the Calgary. The the uh, the workers that came through uh, Calgary Stampede when everyone was uh, you know flocking to see everyone down here or excuse me in the United States was flocking to see Hogan ripping off his shirt or Flair going sixty with whoever Jim Crockett threw at him that night. Uh, the guys in Calgary were setting the tone for the next generation because. You look in the mid-90s, or you look in the late 80s, you got Davey and Dynamite Kid tearing up the tag division with Brett and Jim. The 90s, you got Davey Boy and Pillman and Canadian Stampede, one of the greatest oh, yeah. pay-per-views of all time. <laughs> and I have no, no problem oh, with yeah. And then you got Benoit, and uh, as far as his wrestling days go, of course, Benoit yeah. was one of the greatest ever lace up a pair of boots. And, I, w- I yeah. was the... Uh... I was the booker. I was running the show up here during that whole stretch, and I uh, I painstakingly orchestrated all that and uh, was kind of uh, overseeing all that, you know. And uh, so, you know, uh, that's you one proud. of the things. Yeah, so I uh, I feel like I have some legitimate perspective about all that. And oh, yeah. one of the key, key things with the whole thing is whatever the hell you do have a reason you know yes. and that was one of the uh things that you know uh, no matter what we did if you told the guy to shave his head or pretend he was this or uh you know uh play this role or that role or whatever the hell there was always a reason you know and if you couldn't explain your rationale you shouldn't be doing it and it's a simple thing but it kind of you know was all too often well, I you, see uh If you stuff can't explain it, the it's... fans aren't going to understand it, and they're not going to pay for it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to very artfully and subtly hook them. And, uh, That's it. The tail never wags the dog. It's about drawing money. The, 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 the name of the game 
you can you can you can you can add rules. You can try to tweak the rules to make them sound cooler. The name of the game is drawing a butt every 18 inches. And if you're not in it for that, you need to get out. And that's oh yeah. <laughs> uh, contrary to what some people might think, there should be a method to the madness. You know? <laughs> I tell people all the time: if you want a hobby, go collect some stamps. And, yep. and today, and today, you can you can make your own Xbox video game. You can create your own pay per view. You can put the strap on yourself, and uh, people can stay home in mommy's basement and do that all day. Well, you let people like me and Bruce, uh, and I'm not in Bruce's field, but I'm just saying you let people like me down here and let Bruce up there worry about the business, and uh, just come buy a ticket. <laughs> Oh yeah, and then just, and just to let you know, Bruce, we got a uh, we got a couple more minutes left, about uh, about three more minutes. How's that? Okay, well that's cool. Okay, I'm gonna let you guys cool. wrap I, up. I, I'm gonna let you guys wrap up. I need to let me go ahead and plug uh, my my TV. It's IHWE TV. It's every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. Central on IHWE Now. That's IHWENOW.com. And if you go to YouTube, put in IHWE2009. We have oh, almost 200 videos of wrestling from Texas, our archives. And then, like I said, two weeks from tonight, we have a Old School Hustle. Bruce, that's the name of the show. It's called Old School Hustle. And we've got Jim Cornette, Stan Hansen, the grappler Lynn Denton, Lance Hoyt, Charlie Haas, the ICW champion Matt Riviera, the pro wrestling gorilla champion, and the one half of the Ring of Honor tag team champion Kyle O'Reilly. It's at the Sendera Center in Fort Worth, Texas. It is going to be the Cauliflower Alley Club. Members of the Cauliflower Alley Club are going to be there. Uh, it's going to be Black Bart will be there. It is going to be a historic night, uh, and I am very proud to be associated with it. So, Is my old friend uh, Johnny Mantel taking that in? or? <laughs> No, uh, Johnny. Uh, Johnny. Uh, Johnny. Uh, Johnny won't be there. Uh, I don't. Uh, Johnny. Uh, Johnny. And me has spoken a few times, and uh, I don't think Johnny uh, particularly cares for uh, what I'm doing. Or we haven't oh. talked in a long time. We haven't. We haven't talked in a long time. But I have nothing negative to say about Johnny. He's he's put in his time, and I respect it. We just for whatever reason, they just yeah, and that happens okay. sometimes. Yeah. You that's, that's fine, <laughs> but I wish you well, Dave, and I'll uh, I'll be in touch. I'll have Bob Johnson get me all your uh, uh, information. I'll give you a call Sounds sometime. Good. And, uh, Sounds good. Yeah, I, uh, I'm glad to see guys like you are uh, taking some initiative, and uh, business needs more guys like you. So I well, certainly wish you well. It, it, I, I always wanted to be in the business, and now that I'm in the business, I think I, it's a pleasure to be in the business. It's an honor to be in the business. The business doesn't owe me anything, and I think a lot of people who are in the business, it's a, it should be a privilege, and the business doesn't owe anybody anything, and that's my mentality. And as long as that's yeah. my mentality, I'm going to keep doing what I can. Yeah. Ask not what the yeah. business can do for you. Ask what you can do for it. So. Exactly. Well, Bruce, thank oh. you for your time. Bob, thank you guys for having me. Y'all have a good night. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, is that just you and me now, Evan? Yes, it's just us. Um, you had any uh, closing um, closing remarks? Anything you needed to plug, Bruce? I'd just like to thank everyone for listening, and uh, I'd like to thank you for uh, pinch hitting tonight, Evan. Uh, you did a, a nice job, and 
wasn't easy. You know, you got a lot of old farts like me and uh, the others talking, and uh, you know, you get kind of lost in the shuffle. So, I much appreciate your patience and your uh, tolerating us. So, thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to uh, the next time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If I can, I'm go ahead and plug. Um you know, plug my show since I'm a part of the PWP family. Yeah, feel free to. That's fine. Um, yeah, I just want to let everybody know um, this is Evan Pro. I'm also known as tech host of Under the Mats Radio. Uh, we are winners of Best New Wrestling Radio Show in 2013 by the Wrestling Radio Awards. Um, we are not, we are a new show. We are now uh, affiliated with Pro Wrestling Powerhouse. We've been on another network for the past year and a couple of months. So we will be debuting on Pro Wrestling Powerhouse Network on this coming Tuesday, which is September the 12th, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We have guest um, Guinness Book of World Record winner and five-time CMO American champion Kelly Nettin will be joining us. And we also will have fundraiser genius and guru Mike Ryan will be joining us. So upcoming weeks, you can follow us on Facebook, type in Under the Mats Radio. You can follow us on Twitter at tech at utmr and you can also email us at under the mats radio at gmail.com we also have guest eliza burke we have um hall of famer ivan koloff we have a lot of other great guests that are coming up very soon and i will be back uh september the 28th i will be back with you bruce definitely to um help you with uh, the show at that time i look forward to it evan thank you very much and uh all the very best to the uh all the listeners out there, thanks for uh, giving us your ear. So I'll I'll talk to you in two weeks, seven, and I'll look forward to seeing all the other people, uh, hearing them next week on uh, the next edition of Heartbeat Radio. Until then, yeah. everyone, God bless and uh, hang in there. Thank you. God bless okay. everyone, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Bye. Thank you.